With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Book of Matt. Uh, again, Matthew Shepard murdered in 1998 uh, in Wyoming. Um, why is this book titled The Book of Matt? It certainly, at least to me, has some biblical connotations. Well, uh, at the time of Matthew's attack, there was a tremendous amount of religious imagery and religious iconography that became associated with this crime. Uh, there was a lot of erroneous reporting, too, that depicted him, uh, Matthew Shepard, as being um, hanging on a fence. And, you know, immediately there were parallels made to Jesus. I remember seeing uh, certain... Um, newspaper illustrations, etc. So there was the way in which, um, you know, being a short uh, a short guy, he was 21 years old, a somewhat frail stature, blonde hair, that, um, you know, he was very much portrayed as, as a Jesus-like figure, and, the you know, the horrible murder that happened to him was viewed as a crucifixion. So that was one place where I wanted to uh, address some of the early inaccuracies in the reporting, but also what happened in this case, Gus, is that a mythology very quickly replaced, uh, you know, hard facts and, and, and what was true. So I felt that I wanted to, uh, you know, look at what was true and offer an alternate version and really under, underscore and emphasize the importance of truth, uh, particularly when, uh, you know, me when media descends on a place, as they did Laramie, Wyoming, and, and you know, a narrative was constructed very quickly um, that became accepted as fact, and there, were, there was a lot of mythologizing there. So, you know, the, the choosing the Book of Matt was a, a way of trying to identify some truths in the story that uh, had never come out, and to play those, I guess we could call it, uh, you know, as a counter-myth or a different story uh, from the one that had originally been told. Originally, uh, I, I followed the case in the media when, uh, in 1998 and 1999. The, the uh, case ended with the trial of uh, Aaron McKinney, uh, the principal perpetrator, in, it ended in early November of 1999. When I went to Laramie the first time in early 2000, it was with the idea of writing a script for a made-for-television movie about the story that I believed it to be, which was this was a, a you know a very important narrative for the gay community at the time. That this was really about uh, you know someone who had been murdered because he was gay. He had been taken out of a bar you know, and taken to this remote area outside Laramie and was beaten to death because he was gay. And I originally went to Laramie to gather additional information to write that story, um, you know, through meeting the prosecutor in the case and starting to talk with other people and realizing that there was, that there was a whole other set of facts.
James Byrd Jr. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information for non-white people, victims of racism on what the system of white supremacy racism is, how it works, things we can do to solve this problem for this broadcast. My goodness, say at the very beginning, James Byrd Jr., who was under the influence, unless I'm misinformed, alcohol have to be specific for this broadcast at the time he was killed sobriety would be best our broadcast for today man make sure I connect to yesterday quickly as well yesterday we had on Stephen Singular white man suspected racist who wrote that tacky bit in his book about Miriam I. Carry. We talk with Stephen Singular, one, about his work on the John Bonet Ramsey case. And I said, wow, I'm reading his book, Presumed Guilty. Listen to what he says about Boulder, Colorado, with a population 85% white. He wrote The Cops in Boulder. Philip Batney, a retired Boulder Police Department officer with more than a decade on the force, had told me, try to do their jobs, but sometimes it's impossible because the town has only one political party, the Democrats. Everyone who's important in Boulder is allied with everyone else, and the place is run like a ruling elite runs a private club. For years, it was a sanctuary for drug dealers and users. There was no narcotics enforcement when I was a policeman because that's how the people in power wanted it. It was completely haywire from a cop's point of view and that's why I eventually quit. In September 1997, nine months into the Ramsey case, five Boulderites died of heroin poisoning. Back in the 1980s, a retired local physician, Robert McFarlane, had spent more than a decade trying to find out why only a single individual had been prosecuted after Boulder police officers had busted one of the largest heroin labs in America. McFarlane never did receive an acceptable answer from the authorities. The whole legal system in Boulder has produced a hands-off environment. Apparently that relates to child murder too, but that was what he said yesterday. I said, wow, keep that in mind for the program on Tuesday and the other book we talked about, his treatment of the 2012 James Holmes shooting in Aurora, Colorado at the movie theater. What does that have to do with today's broadcast? Heath Ledger. Stunning. (laughs) Programs that I think have nothing to do with each other end up having everything to do with each other. Now, all of that notwithstanding, the audio that we started with. Oh, stand by your work. 
we had Stephen Jimenez as a guest on the program summertime 2016 Mr. Jimenez non-white male and openly classifies as gay he said he went to Wyoming he was looking to write a story something for gay people uplift this is way back like 20 years ago so it's a little bit different regards to LGBTQ all of that he's going thinking I'm writing a story and I can't believe this happened they mistreated this guy because he's gay and all the rest of it he gets there and finds out that's not what happened at all what's the type because the word mythology was used quite a bit in there I think frequently in the system of white supremacy the word mythology gets used as opposed to lie there were not a lot of mythologies told about Matthew Shepard apparently there were a lot of lies to get many people to think he was killed because he was gay the book that Mr. Jimenez wrote and we discussed the book of Matt hidden truths about the murder of Matthew Shepard we talked about it in detail and I asked him I said so dang you concluded based on evidence and talking to enforcement officials he was not killed as a so-called hate crime yep the evidence shows he was probably killed what did we hear from Mr. Fuller drug deal gone bad in the wild and violent methamphetamine trade in Wyoming that's what I thought of after reading our book for today this is very comparable when we talked about affirmative action I said Mark Furman should be on the cover why all that racist talk did he plant a glove on the juice talked about that yesterday all of that and he totally opposed to affirmative action we don't want all these unqualified non-white people and women on the force get on out of the LAPD and all that and he dropped out of high school I said he should have been on the cover of the book about affirmative action Matthew Shepard easily could have been the cover for this book wow you're a white person and you get killed in a drug deal gone bad we don't even remember James Byrd Jr. most of the time it's the Matthew Shepard hate crime bill and as I said that's not like a ooh you went and got some fake new no that was on NPR Mr. Jimenez that's how I found out about it before we spoke to him worked with the New York Times you got a whole book saying no that's not what this is in fact we made a white person who seems like they might have been in the crank trade a biblical figure he was crucified forget James Byrd Jr. being lynched in Jasper Texas Matthew Shepard white Jesus ah. that could have been easy the cover for the book we are talking about today Woo. I should mention that book more often I feel like everybody should read that book the book of Matt hidden truths about the murder of Matthew Shepard our guest for today's broadcast man this here book which is related oh man the title of the book very important white out how racial capitalism changed the color of opioids in America 
three different authors. We have one of the three. One of the triad, he is a historian of drugs whose research focuses on the legal kind, psychoactive pharmaceuticals. Uh, he explores the nature and trajectory of drug commerce, drug use, and drug policy in American racial capitalism. In addition to co-authoring the text that we are talking about today, he also wrote by his lonesome Happy Pills in America from Midtown to Prozac, as well as White Market Drugs, Big Pharma, and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. Hoot to have him on the program to discuss these concepts, learn quite a bit about racism and the history of drug laws. Joining us live, a professor at the University of Buffalo, Dr. David Herzberg. Dr. Herzberg, are you with us, sir? I am. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time and energy. Uh, get a moment to discuss your super important book, uh, co-authored. Uh, any th or any information you would like to share with our audience uh, about who you are, the work that you do out at the University of Buffalo? Yeah, well, I'm a historian of drug and drug policy, like you said, and you know anybody who spends uh, any length of time on this topic, you just get beaten over the head by how central race and racism is to the story of drugs and the kind of harms that can be connected to drugs uh, in the United States. And also maybe sometimes a little bit lesser known half of that story, uh, how the benefits of drugs, you know, because there's a reason why there are pharmaceuticals with opioids in them. Those benefits are also, uh, you know, unequally distributed because of race and racism, both incredibly important stories. And they just, leap out at you from the documents and evidence I studied over the last 150 years, and it's, the, it's at the heart of the story for that whole time. We will cover as much as we can uh, at the time we have you this Tuesday evening. For listeners who have not seen you and you talk about the, or actually all of you, all three authors, you all talk about this explicitly in the book. You are classified as a white man. Is that accurate? That's correct, yes. Right on. Uh, I guess before we get to the book want to make sure did are you informed about the murder of matthew shepherd have you read mr jimenez book the book of matt i haven't read that book um i i know about the the book and what and the arguments that it made and i was just hearing you a little bit before this program and uh you know that's a pretty that's a pretty evocative situation there with those with those two murders and, and getting such a different reception and, and it's really par for the course about how these kind of moral dramas are interpreted uh, and circulated in, in our culture. Uh, folks can, you know, pay attention for themselves. One, because it's the Matthew Shepard, James Byrd Jr. hate crime bill. I frequently hear James Byrd Jr.'s name omitted totally. Mm -hmm. And as I said, there's a whole book saying, wait a minute, this wasn't a hate crime drug deal gone bad wow that is just and not even just that he's compared to white jesus i mean this is not this is something that happens repeatedly you know the uh who who gets portrayed as a victim and who gets portrayed as a villain is deeply deeply uh, influenced by race in, you know, everywhere in American culture, but in drug policy especially, because, you know, whenever 
you have a situation of a white person who is involved with drugs in some way that's, that's problematic, uh, the assumption is, well, there's got to be an explanation for that because, you know, this is a, the, the stereotypes about white people would be, you know, these are good people, they're health seeking. So if there's a situation where somebody is involved in either dealing or using drugs, well, then there has to be a special explanation for that. They didn't set out to do that. Whereas if you have someone who's a racialized person in the United States, a black or brown person, uh, the, the assumption in the white authorities is, well, yeah, that reflects the kind of people that they are, you know, and that, and, um, and you don't need to search for explanation. You don't need to search for an external villain. We already got our villain. And so those stories get told in a really different way. If you have, you know, a white person who's gotten addicted to drugs or fallen into a situation where they're involved in some way, they're looking for an explanation to say, oh, well, you know, this was uh, Big Pharma's fault or this was, uh, you know, um, economic uh, deprivation in the community they lived in. Uh, whereas uh, when you have drug problems that are um, plaguing a, a black community, for example, well, that's that says something supposedly about the character of that community and the strength of the community, not like, oh, well, there was some external force. So, you know, that does a couple of things. One is that, you know, nobody sets out to become addicted to drugs, right? That people use drugs for a lot of different reasons from medical suffering to psychological suffering to wanting to ease their sociability with other people. Nobody sets out to become addicted. That's not on anybody's to-do list. And so really, you know, everybody who is having problematic drug use, they're people with a problem who, um, who need to, who, who need help, who need, you know, they're, they're people with a problem. They're not, they're not ogres. They're not evil villains. They're, they're people with a problem. But we, uh, as a society led by these white authorities who are really just looking out in the situation for white people, they, reserve that that care that empathy of like oh this person is in trouble we need to help them reserve that for white people who use drugs and the hammer comes down um on black people and whole black communities mm. context of white supremacy indeed i just words are very important here i'm about to ask about our definition for racism but uh you when you were talking about white mm-hmm. people and how they are extended lots of sympathy and ca- matthew shepherd uh, even when it's undeserved, uh, but you said if they end up using narcotics and or being involved mm-hmm. with them, and you said fall into using them, distributing them, whatever the case, even that word mm-hmm. fall removes mm-hmm. agency. It suggests that they stumbled, slipped. Mm-hmm. This might have been something beyond their control. It's not quite breaking bad. It's not quite we're so frequently white people like, yeah, I'm going to make some money selling or doing whatever like that. Very important white people agency being removed when they're doing incorrect things. Um, Definition. This program, Mm -hmm. I use the term racism, the term white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition Mm -hmm. for both terms. The definition I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white Mm -hmm. and are dedicated 
to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I mean, it's hard to deny that uh, that a system of white supremacy exists and that it has global, um, you know, that it has been global for quite some time. You know, like, um, the only, like, complexity that I would want to introduce into it, if it, you know, if I, if I could, just maybe for the point of, of discussion, is that... Um, those that last phrase about people that they characterize that they categorize as white or that they categorize as not white that uh one of the things that that we discovered in researching and writing this book is that if you don't serve the purposes of whiteness as a system which you know you're describing as white supremacy quite accurately uh then you're going to get uh categorized you're going to get kind of voted off that that whiteness island in a certain way, and there are people who have it sometimes been categorized as white who then get um, they then kind of get decategorized because they're uh, they're not serving the purposes of whiteness as a system. So it's like how to how to uh, think about this relationship between um, uh, people. And then the system that they build to privilege themselves and what happens when somebody uh, behaves in some ways or uh, ceases to be useful for that system. And the only reason that I think about that is that, um, you know, everybody who is categorized as white benefits from this white supremacy you're talking about and very much including myself um, on that. And there's and that does not require any personal volition on your part, this, this is, there's nobody who can claim, you know, nobody categorizes white who can claim they don't benefit from it. Um, but people who are white can sometimes also get screwed by the system of whiteness because it's there to serve the purposes of like whiteness as a, as a system, whiteness as a category. And sometimes, for example, with the opioid crisis, Right there's this white there's a white privilege involved at the beginning of it and the white privilege was um, the medical system is going to take your pain seriously if if you are suffering from pain and you go to a doctor that uh, that doctor in our in our medical system you know the statistics the studies show they're far more likely to take the fact that you to believe that you're in pain to believe that you deserve to have your pain um, relieved. There's a long tradition in Euro-American white culture of believing that um, that white people experience pain more intensely, and uh, so therefore it deserves to be treated. And that so that's a privilege under almost any circumstance. That, that like there's this big social institution, medicine, and it's there to try to help relieve your suffering. In the case in the in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when um, uh, one of the things that privilege delivered was a ton of opioids. So the, the the opioid companies, aware of the racist stereotypes that addiction is a thing that Dr. Herzberger, you know, part of the, I just want to pause uh, really yes, quick, sir. just because we deviated yeah. a little bit from the 
definition uh and also we even deviated we deviated even to the word privilege and like we got way far afield (laughs) one i'm just pointing this out for listeners because uh we even had a chuckle in there one uh i have no idea where is whiteness island where is that i'm going to get my map out where is whiteness island that that was just uh, I was just using a figure of speech. There there isn't a, a whiteness island. I I meant that um, the category of whiteness, whether oh. you um, you know whether you're going to receive the full benefits of being part of that category. I see. Metaphors are very important. Uh, one of the words we've talked about frequently this year on the program is hierarchy. Absolutely. Not all of the individuals classified as white in the world, known universe, get the same amount of goodies as a result of the system of white supremacy racism. But I mean, as he stated, you do get goodies as a result of the system of white supremacy racism and mistreating non-white people. Now, uh, the decategorized part. Wow. That is really important. Um, wow. Decategorize. Do you know individuals classified as white who get decategorized where they are no longer like, do they get a new classification on their birth certificate? Do they have to change the classification on their driver's license pass? Because there's so many official documents that have racial classifications. So do they have to change all that material when they get declassified re or decategorized as white? Uh, you know, no, I don't. And you're quite right to to, uh, to stop me on that. And that's not that wasn't uh, an accurate way to to talk about um, to talk about that. So uh, I definitely concede that point. I I, uh, I use the wrong word there, and it doesn't make sense. It usually goes the other direction. That there are people who, you know, one of the ways that the that the system of whiteness has functioned in the U.S. is to bring on board people who were previously categorized as not white and bring them in. To uh, sustain a, a um, enough white people to maintain that that white supremacist structure. So, you know, thinking about um, Southern and Eastern Europeans who came in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, they were categorized by the by the white authorities at the time as being um, as being not real white people. They were kind of uh, seen as halfway between being white people uh, and non-white people, and that. And that racial categorization uh, kind of disappeared when they were brought into that ruling coalition and uh, got to share in the benefit, full benefits of whiteness. So, you know, the boundaries of who of who is categorized as white does change over time. But you, but you're right that uh, it doesn't uh, not that any way that I can think of it doesn't go in that in that other direction. So oh. I, I apologize for that. Much obliged. I will point out that that metaphor that would be two metaphors and or major inaccuracies just in trying to get a response to my definition one of the ways that I've concluded that white people deliberately practice white supremacy racism they are not honest when they talk about racism especially when they talk to people who are classified as not white so if we can be as accurate as possible that is so important in going over the important information uh, in your text and to make sure that we get answers without 
uh, deviating, even if you don't agree or, or what, like I asked about the definition, if you don't think it's accurate, that's great. Mm-hmm. You can share. Um, but that is super important. Is it, can we request if you can do your best, uh, to be direct and truthfully answer our questions in the time that we have you, Dr. Herzberg? Yes, I, I, I will. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. So we're going to get back to our definition. I even want to take time to point out for our victims of white supremacy, non-white people who this broadcast is intended for. I think if it had been many other non-white people, he would have got us. Even if it had been myself some years back, I would not have stopped to say, wait a minute. I don't even I'm not even really sure I got an answer to the part about the definition being accurate. And then we got double whammy, two metaphors that end up not being accurate. Whiteness Island, man. I was about to get my map out. So back to the definition. And we got two inaccuracies to challenge the accuracy of my definition. Asterisk there. Definition. So is that definition accurate? Does such a system exist? The definition again, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Is that accurate? Does such a system exist? I believe so. Much obliged, Dr. Herzberger. And even the cherry on top, I've been thinking because some of these points come across in the book. That's even that's another reason why I started with Matthew Shepard, because, man, Wyoming is like one of the hillbilly white regions. And even there, crank. No, 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 no. Hero. Crime bill. Yes. But anyway, he was talking about some of the white times you have white sacrifice where white people, things don't work out as well. We've talked about this drug issue a number of times over our 14 years. We had Clarence Lusane on the program way back when we talked about his book, Pipe Dream Blues. Uh, and he, I read this book before this broadcast existed. Then I read it again after we got him on the program to chat about his sentence where he says, white high school dropouts like Mark Furman will have a better chance of finding work than a black college graduate with the data yeah. to back that that's the sort of thing that I like to remind folks of myself included when they talk about you know the white people who don't have as many goodies it's still way better than being classified as black and mistreated uh, specifically with this book I guess I'll read a, a snippet from white out that you uh, co-authored, and then you can tell us what exactly was the the purpose or what problem you all were trying to address with this text. The snippet I'll read, I think, maybe gets to it some way. You write, uh, in the U.S., in which some drugs become illegal through association with non-white users, how it's written, and other drugs are legal and are deemed medicines reserved for white and middle-class consumers, In short, a system in which the whiteness of certain drugs medicalizes them. In this book, we examine this unspoken but determinative whiteness of opioids to make the ways that whiteness works in drug policy and treatment visible. 
Here, white out refers to the use of white imagery to hide or cover the inner workings of segregation in drug policies and healthcare industries. It also refers to the need to bring whiteness out of the silence and shadows of drug policy and healthcare so that it can be seen, so that its harm to white people and people of color can be collectively addressed. What problem were you all trying to solve with the book Whiteout? Well, I think that there has been uh, a lot of good work and a lot of good attention um, to the ongoing problem of anti-black racism in uh, the making of drug policy and the enforcement of drug policy in the U.S. And one of the things that this book is trying to address is the other side of the coin, which is how pro-white racism, if I can put it that way, um, has also been a factor influencing how, you know, who is, um, how drugs circulate, who either has uh, access to drugs or who is exposed to drugs, depending on how you want to look at it. And, uh, and so we were trying to explain how um, these uh, essentially um, positive stereotypes about white people that are that circulate in this system of white supremacy, as you were talking about, how those have also played a role in things like the opioid crisis, which then ends up um, not just harming the, for example, those uh, those white communities that were originally targeted by pharmaceutical companies, but end up, as is happening now, when you have overdose rates moving up uh, fastest in black and brown communities, that, uh, that we need to understand how those um, racial ideas about white people uh, create those kind of social crises. Right on. Okay. Okay. And I'll give out, make sure everyone got their shout out, didn't miss anybody. So the three authors uh, for the text, Helen Hansen, Jules Netherland, Dr. Hertzberg, um, what you all had brought specific expertise to the text. So what was your sp mm -hmm. specific expertise that you brought to Whiteout? Yeah, so I'm a historian. So what I did is uh, I've got um, experience looking at the long history of this uh, destructive set of segregative policies, you know, uh, looking at um, looking at how the racial hierarchies that are maintained in the United States, how those have been shaping the experiences of people who uh, make, sell, buy, use, and police drugs over the course of the past century. Um, and Helena Hansen, the lead author of the book, uh, she is a she's a an MD uh, psychiatrist with a specialty in addiction treatment, and she's also an anthropologist. And so she brings her experience of working with people with addiction and, um, and working on, on treatment and interviewing those uh, people involved with that. And Jules Netherland works for the Drug Policy Alliance on um, trying to advocate for rational public health anti-racist drug policies. Um, so each of us came with our own particular uh, perspective on the, on the topic.
if I got my and again all of this is discussed explicitly uh, within the text it's two two of the authors are classified as white and one author classified as non-white and I think it's the lead author uh, Dr. Hansen is classified as not white is that all accurate yeah that's right okay Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I'll written, as I said, all of this is discussed explicitly in the text, which is kind of unusual, I'll say for these. Uh, but like, I don't remember Clarence, I mentioned him, Clarence Lusane. He was with us. I don't remember him having a section where he talks about his. Oh, yes, he does. Retraction. Yes, he does. Matter of fact, for the books on drugs, I will have to retract for the books on drugs. This is common. Most of the authors, they do talk about whatever personal connection they have to this so i'm thinking john potash because we had him on he's an addiction counselor and he talks about that in the book okay retraction it's pretty common all right i want to read the section where uh dr herzberg he talks about his personal connection to all of this i had to skip ahead a little bit in the text this is chapter four uh mother's little helpers white narcotics in the medicine cabinet so you write specifically uh, i'm not sure it's always easy for white people to see or accept the ways we reinforce racial hierarchies. Maybe readers should know something about me so they can place me not as an omniscient author above the fray, but as someone with a particular relationship to whiteness, drugs, and addiction. I feel uncomfortable about this for lots of reasons. I'll pause right there. What was uncomfortable about this for you as a white man? Yeah, so different. <laughs> right. Well, it's um, it's uncomfortable because I benefit from the systems that we're writing about, and that is uh, that is. I mean, it's a it's a it's an uncomfortable truth, particularly in this context where I'm trying to contribute what I can to an effort to push back uh, against it, uh, even while recognizing you know, that I, I personally, in ways that, that I go on in detail, have at lots of key moments in my life benefited from that white privilege. At a, to a lesser degree, it's uncomfortable because historians really don't do this. Like even historians of drugs, we don't we don't introduce ourselves in the text. Helena, the, the lead author, anthropologists do do that uh, just as a practice. Um, and so I was, you know, it, it it didn't feel like something I was I was used to doing. And then lastly, because as you know, I haven't read the section. Uh, I had had my own experience with using drugs and addiction back when I was a, a younger person, and this isn't something that was publicly known. And so this was a um, this was a uh, a kind of level of exposure for me that I wasn't. Um, it was new to me. See, okay. Um, how did how was all of this broached like collectively? Was this something that uh, Dr. Hansen, the lead author, where she said this is important, we need to do this, or how did how did this portion of the mm -hmm. book even involve evolve? Yeah, uh, you know, Helena is it's a, a brilliant person. I mean, seriously, and and I have a lot of um, you know, I, I have a lot of 
admiration and, and respect for her. And she, she made the case to me, you know, she said, you, you know, you can choose. She wasn't trying to pressure me or anything, but she, she said, you know, there are going to be some, <clears throat> excuse me, there can be some readers, particularly white readers who you might be able to, uh, you know, hearing your story might be able to help them see, uh, see these kinds of racial structures in their own lives. Uh, and, you know, that could be, that could be useful in getting some understanding out there. And, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Um, you know, like I said in there, I'm a, I'm a learner about white supremacy. I know that the, um, that it's one of those things that a true understanding comes from being, uh, from, from, um, looking at looking up at it you know when it's when you are the target uh you gain an understanding that that is not replicable uh by someone using their um you know their intellectual facilities to you know to try to work on and so it's hard for me to to know whether that is true whether whether people will be able to read that and and uh you know see a path for, for recognizing these kind of things. But like I said, I mean, she is, um, she's someone I just have a ton of respect for. And I, and so, you know, I mean, I, whatever, I found it scary to do, uh, but it, but I, um, you know, but, but I, you can only hope that, that it can do something useful, however small, uh, in a however small way. Much obliged for the the response. That's fascinating. He said, "Scary, like, uh, wow." What? Give me, give me some detail, Doctor Hertzberg. So, in your mind, like, what was the worst that could have possibly happened? You writing this, some of these personal details for it to be scary. Like, what was the worst that could have possibly happened? Well, let me put it this way: you know, there are a lot of different ways to be scared, and I'll say. Uh, it's true that by the time I wrote this, you know, professionally, I'm a tenured professor. Um, uh, my job is pretty protected, at least in the state that I work in. And so that wasn't the kind of fear that I was wrestling with, although there were certainly, you know, there were reasons why I hadn't, I hadn't gone public with it before. But so it's really just personal reasons to think about whether, you know, for example, this isn't something my parents knew. And, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. And to be perfectly honest, you know, I haven't, I haven't had a conversation about this with pretty much anyone in whatever, 30 years that it's been. And that's, that's a little unnerving too, but just at a personal level. I'm not trying to say that I was, you know, fearing for my life or fearing for my livelihood at this point. It's just personal fear. Thank you for the clarification. Context of white supremacy. Okay. Did your parents, did they read the book and, you know, wow, we didn't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I, mean, I, I, I sent them, I sent them that section beforehand. You know, I wrote them a letter and just said, look, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a thing that's going to be out there. And just one felt like you ought to know. Not that, you know, not that a ton of people read academic books. You know, they're they're not we're not going to be you know climbing bestseller lists or anything like that. It's it's um 
it's not the kind of thing that everybody picks up and reads uh, for pleasure. Mm. Except for the bell curve. Uh, when you use the term mm. whiteness, what do you mean? Whiteness is a system of privileging people who authorities categorize as white. And in the book, we make the argument that the overall purpose of the system is to enrich the, um, the wealthy white capitalists at the top of that system. And the system of whiteness is, um, is designed to produce capitalist profit. Uh, and the benefits to white people are a product of that project. Okay. Okay. That fascinating. He uh, used the term uh, benefit. He used it quite a few times in chatting with us this evening so far, uh, as well as the term uh, privilege. Uh, and the term privilege is mm-hmm. in the book many, many times. In fact, the, uh, the term privilege is in the book 77 times uh, in a variety of different ways, generally white privilege. Uh, I, that's one that I pointed out in terms of a pattern that I've noted over a number of years uh, when individuals classified as white talk about white supremacy, the system of white supremacy. They will talk uh, incessantly about white privilege and the benefits that they accrue from this system. We had Dr. Peggy McIntosh on the program too. Uh, They almost never discuss ways that they practice white supremacy racism. So Mm. we'll see if you deviate Mm. from the norm. Dr. Herzberg, Mm. can you think of any of the ways throughout your life where you have practiced white supremacy racism? Well, let me, uh, let me, since I understand that you're very careful with your words, let me just make sure I understand one of the words used in there. When you say practice, can you just uh, tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that so I can make sure that I can answer accurately? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, so as a white man, any time uh, where either you mistreated someone because they were not white, uh, were dishonest, lied to them. That's a big one. Uh, non-white people not being uh, truthful with individuals who classified as not white. Uh, utilized your white power uh, to carry out unjust acts that you know. I was only able to do this because I'm classified as white in system of white mm-hmm. supremacy racism. Those types of things where these would be gotcha. acts where you're practicing racism, white supremacy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's so so many of those. Uh, the one, one I start with where I'm sitting right now is in a house, and uh, I bought this house. And you know, in the in the United States real estate system, like residential segregation is at the is at the heart of white supremacy in the U.S., particularly outside the South. And you know, I'm I live in Buffalo, New York, so buying a house in um, in the Elmwood Village neighborhood where I live in, you know, it's not like it's a 100% white neighborhood. It's not at all, but it is a place where, you know, it would be impossible to deny that uh, my being white made it easier and possibly, you know, could have made it possible for me to buy the house. And let's just say one of the reasons I was able to buy the house was that in a previous 
home that I owned, it uh, it appreciated in value from uh, from when I bought it. This was a you know earlier in life uh, an abandoned uh, home that that I bought and and worked on, but that the the value went up. That uh, you know it, in our system that's that's uh, well I was about to use a metaphor I was going to say that's blood money. But uh, but what it is, you know, there's a, the system of residential segregation ensures that that houses owned by white people tend to increase in in value, and so that when I moved and sold that house, there was money to be used as a down payment in the next house, and and that uh, I think that's an example of what you're talking about of practicing white supremacy, uh, and it's the kind of thing that um, you know that produces material benefits to me in the sense that I live in a house uh, while also reinforces and, and acts and practices this overall system. Okay. Can you, with regards to individuals who are not white, can you think of a time where you know you did not treat someone correctly? Uh, you mistreated them and it was specifically because they were not white. If this person had been white, you would have treated them correctly, done the correct thing, practiced justice. Can you think of a time where that sort of thing happened? At a at a personal individual level, you know, I I mean I don't have an example like that that I can that I can think up uh, off the top of my head, uh, you know, and when I in, when I think about and work on um, white supremacy, and when I when I um, teaching students about it and stuff, one of the things, one of the key distinctions, is between that that personal level of like, do you uh, a lot of a lot of white people in particular, I think believe that like the heart of racism is that kind of individual personal um, bias or animosity and that that makes it uh, hard for them to understand the ways that kind of actions like buying a home uh, can be racist. So, you know, I don't, I don't have examples that I can that I can draw off the top of my head from that right now. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It really doesn't. Uh, but um, but I also think that um, that some of those more what we call them, you know structural um, structures of racism are kind of a, an engine that that produces. Um, that produces inequalities and also that also shapes those kind of individual views. I'm, I'm just stammering around because I'm trying to think of if I have a, a story that I can share with you, and I'm sorry, I, I, I can't come up with one. You might be able to talk to some of my friends, and maybe some of them would be able to tell you, oh, yeah, you know, this is <laughs> like you should have seen this situation, but um, I'm. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I can't take a song. You can ponder on it 
uh, as we chat. If you think of one before you depart, you can share it with us. Maybe we'll give you a reminder. Mm-hmm. Certainly pause for Peyton Gendron. I was in Buffalo earlier this year for the sentencing. Not forgotten on me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, continuing with the chapter, you write, like other white people, my life has been profoundly shaped by racial privileges. In fact, I had well more than my share. The nearly all-white small-town public high school I went to in Vermont was a feeder for the Ivy League, helping a high-performing but otherwise unexceptional student get into Harvard. said, hmm, nearly all-white small-town. This sounds like a racially restricted region, a.k.a. sundown town. So when you say all-white, so were there any black people? in your like high school or neighborhood that you can recall? Yeah, uh, there were, uh, there were uh, two people in my grade, uh, who, two black people in my grade. Uh, but, you know, Vermont as a whole, like, you know, it's like 99% white or something like that. Uh, so it wasn't anything particular about the town, it was something particular about the state. <laughs> um, wow. Wow. Two. Yeah. Two. My goodness. Uh, did you hear any racist jokes? And, in, oh, did you, were you going to add something? No, I just—I uh, was going to say, you know, it's a small town, it was a small high school, but it's still, yeah, too, it's a small number. For sure. Did you hear any racist jokes in this racially restricted region in Vermont? You know, I'm so sure that I did. Uh, let me think for a minute. You know, I know that uh, I, I, I think a lot of people in my high school thought or assumed I was gay, so I heard a lot more gay jokes. Um, but, I mean, it's just impossible that that I wouldn't, given the given the setting. Um, let me just try to remember. I mean, also, to be fair, I wasn't uh, a, a super, um, like, I wasn't a super popular guy in my high school. We were, hey, go figure, went on to, you know, become a historian. Uh, but, um, so, uh I didn't necessarily have as wide of a of a range of interactions as, as some people would have, but let me just think here. Well, I'm not I'm not remembering a specific incident, but it doesn't seem conceivable. You know, just given how how many times in my life in general another white person will metaphorically put their arm around me and ask me to share in some kind of, a, you know, racist comment, I, I'm sure that that happened at that time as well. Sounds, that's what I was thinking it would have to be given that sort of environment, yeah. but... All right. You bet. That's, yeah. That also has been a big pattern. We've had many white, we've, been, we've had some white people who said that they grew up and heard thousands, and I mean literally thousands, but they just could mm-hmm. not remember one for us. Always, I'm an advocate of hearing those racist jokes because a lot of times they reveal truth about how white people really think about black people. Uh, you can, we even got a shout to uh, Wisconsin. Always have to get my Jeffrey Dahmer in there for Wisconsin. You continue, uh, this picture of an unconsciously white scholar is accurate but incomplete. Had I also had experiences that worked against the unthinking confidence 
that whiteness provides. As Helen explained, whiteness is a system, not a type of person, and it serves its own masters. The privilege, privileges of whiteness can weaken or at least change when one falls out of alignment with those larger purposes. For example, in the 1970s, I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas as a noisy, energetic Jew in a recently desegregated public elementary school that still stopped regularly for Christian prayer time. I was disciplined brutally and often got terrible grades. At some point, maybe it was later when I was a teenager, my parents explicitly warned me not to get too comfortable being white. When push came to shove, the real white people would not consider me one of them. I didn't understand, but it stuck with me. In high school in Vermont, I was a nerd, just told us, mocked and bullied by my peers who, in retrospect, probably thought I was gay. At Harvard, I also felt out of place that I dropped out after the first year. Now, man, I read I was stymied by many points uh, as I read along here. Uh, let's let me see if I can the the disciplined brutally and got terrible grades. Mm-hmm. Was that because you think you were not accepted as white? They thought you were so-called Jew? Um, well, that's a little bit hard to say, but, you know, there's no doubting that not behaving right during prayer time was, uh, was a big flashpoint. And, you know, this, this was Arkansas in the 70s, so I got, I mean, one time I was locked in the closet all day with, with no light or... Um, uh, made to stand on my head in front of the class, like against the wall, until I passed out. So there were, you know, like it didn't it didn't look to me like uh, very. I mean, but then again, I was like such a such a problem kid, you know, like noisy. I mean, I was I was very uh, what they call hyperactive. I did have a hard time shutting up. You know, I'm not trying to excuse this. Um, this treatment on me, but it's hard to say. But my point there was just that I, um, at that time, I, one of the things that, one of the things that I'm talking about in there, uh, in that section is that um, one of the wages of whiteness, so to speak, like one of the, one of the payoffs that, that people categorize as white um, get is this kind of confidence that you are, walking through a world made for you, like, you know, this school is made for you and this, you know, this society is, is built for you. That's a, like a psychological wage. And I was just trying to point out that, um, like you said earlier on the program, that, that the distribution of, of goodies, you know, doesn't necessarily fall equally to everybody within that, within that system. And that I, I guess I was just trying to, explain how uh, the the path by which I came to recognize um, this aspect of my life, you know, that this, this, uh, this whiteness is something that, that I've been in. And it seemed possible that one, um, the one aspect of that was the consequences of ways and times that I didn't fit in, that it didn't seem like things had been built for me that might've created a little bit of, dissonance 
so that when people who really understood white supremacy, talking about uh, black and brown friends and colleagues, talked to me about it, like that that helped me, who was quite unintelligent about this kind of thing, to at least start to try to understand. That's the that's the idea, anyway. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, that definitely put like fifty asterisk there because he said that people who really understand white supremacy like oh my gosh put 50 60 asterisks there uh, and in fact hmm. I'll just go back to the part that I just highlighted we got two people here who are definitely non-white unless I've been misinformed you said your parents told you don't get too comfortable being white when push comes to shove, the real white people would not consider me one of them. It seems like your parents had some understanding of white supremacy racism, yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's true. And they, but they'd had, they'd had experiences that I didn't have, okay? Uh, they, you know, they had the experiences um, of being Jewish in the Deep South in the late 40s and early 50s at a time when, you know, uh, this this kind of experience has not happened to me. They were, uh, you know, they were sold a house in a white neighborhood uh, that was zoned that you weren't allowed to uh, sell to Jewish people. And I guess that this was their parents bought that house and they didn't tell the realtor, I guess. And when it was discovered that this was a Jewish family living in the neighborhood, like in a classic kind of way that you see again and again in American residential segregation stories, they were they were run out of the neighborhood. Like my dad's dog was killed, they, they got beat up, they ended up having to abandon the house and just move out of the town. So they had a they had a um, a lived experience of a brush up against that in a way that I didn't. You know, my experiences were. You know, my experiences were experiences of um, of benefiting from um, from being a white person, and they were just old enough that they had some experiences from a from a period of time in which um, I guess you would say Jews were on their way to becoming fully white in the U.S., but they weren't fully uh, accepted that way uh, as yet. They killed the dogs, folks. I'm so. I'm, my apologies to our listeners. I got to get the dog sound effect. Like came all of the really important programs that we've done about canines this summer and our history. And the, I mean, now you know it is serious. When they they killed Nat King Cole. Anyway, and we've about that issue specifically. I've heard that so many times. A non-white person moves to the area. What nigger moved here? Non-white person moved here. Burn the house down, burn them. If we can't kill them, we'll kill the dog. Now, I mean, really, really. Did that happen for you? Since you said different experience, they, your parents, they were on the way to being fully accepted as white people, white man, white woman. For you, did that happen? Did you ever bump into someone who said you are not a what you are decategorized? Hmm. Uh, no, I mean, I I heard the occasional. Uh, you know, people would say things, not realizing that uh, I was Jewish. They'd say something about Jews, but that, but 
really, I mean, like I, like I said, my experience has been as a white person in America, I, you know, and those experiences that I had of feeling, um, uh, you know, feeling like I wasn't, um, uh, fully embraced or whatever by any situation, that's a white person experience as well. You know, even like the, the assumption that you're, that you're, society that the authorities that the institutions like schools are supposed to embrace you or, you know are there for you that's a kind of a white uh assumption presumption to begin with and then uh that so that feeling of separation from that and uh for whatever in whatever small ways you know small ways that i did um you know all of those were the experiences of a white person fascinating fascinating um, you said, and that's why I, said, I, I really pay attention, make an effort to pay attention to words and accuracy. And this is a big one because so many people say this and clearly this cannot be true. You write within the same, it's like a paragraph over from what I just read. You say everything mm-hmm. I learned about whiteness. I think that's got to be a synonym for white supremacy, racism as a system here. I learned by reading or listening to a person of color. That cannot be true because one, your parents just gave you information about racism, white supremacy. This could happen. You said based on their experience becoming white, but either way, you all got to go to Vermont. You get to go to Harvard and all this. It sounds like they got there. White man, white woman talking to a white man. You have learned from individuals classified as white. That has to be true. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's really interesting. That's a that's a really good point. And I let me, I'm just going to try to think about what um, what I was trying to get at with that. If you permit me to just um, just think a minute, because there was there is something that I learned from friends and colleagues of color that I did not know on my own and that I couldn't understand on my own. So maybe, I mean, I hear your point that I was an expert in white supremacy already. Right. Um, But what, so what is it, what is it that I learned? Because, you know, you're totally right uh, to say everything there. That is, that, that is inaccurate, but there was, there is something. And I think the something is um, a, a, uh, conscious intellectual awareness of what that system is and how I fit into it, that there's a way in which um, I I became more deeply and consciously aware of the ways that I and other white people practiced uh, racism, white supremacy, that I wasn't aware of before. So I don't know exactly like what the right, what the best way to say that would have been, but I think you make a really good point. Um, I don't know what is it. So, what would be the right words to say there? Because because I learned something. Like I really did. I mean, at least I think I did. That's what it felt like. I felt like I am I am learning something that I, I learning and understanding something that I didn't uh, understand. Maybe it's just consciousness of it. Thank you for thinking about it out loud with us. Um, 
my response uh, this is a dangerous inaccuracy because this is very common where hmm. white people are it's the same thing you all talk about in the in the book the innocence of white people the naivete of white people white people are unwitting hmm. unknowing they're not informed all of this suggests that white people are ignorant about racism and that cannot be true but people say that all the time i, I mean just it can't be true white people we have and people they say exact white people say exactly what you wrote everything i learned about racism i learned from black people it's almost like that's a cool thing to say that no, that's not what that wait hang on a minute because that isn't what i wrote there that one i might have to stop you there mm -hmm. i did not say everything i learned about racism i said everything i learned about whiteness but there is a difference there what's the difference again for us whiteness and racism whiteness is an element of racism right but racism is a uh, is a system of race race hierarchy that um uh that um distributes what it, uh, you had you i'm trying to think about how you use your words in there um i think you said subjugation i, I would say that um that uh unequally distributes benefits and harms to the to the advantage of the people at the top of the race hierarchy and whiteness is the uh you know whiteness is the set of ideas and practices associated with the privileged category in that system <clears throat> okay so it's you learn specifically from the non-white people, not racism, but whiteness, you learn from these non-white. Even that, that can't be true. The experts on whiteness and racism have to be the people who are classified as white. It really, it's one and the same. This consistency of white people. Ian Hani Lopez, white by law, that's the theme of the book. And matter of fact, the Supreme Court agrees with me. The Supreme Court said, I'm not aware of that uh, decision being overturned. Hey, white people know what it means to be white. That's what they said. And they almost worded it just that way. White people know what it means to be white. You are not a lot. If you and you it's in the framework of the book. I can even walk down the pharmaceutical companies. Their money is wagered on the fact you cannot be ignorant about racism whiteness any component of this for what we're doing with our campaign it comes up repeatedly in the book white people cannot none of this they are the experts in that that's right up there it's another one where they the patterns in terms of the racist jokes that's a big one talking about the benefits and privileges of white supremacy as opposed to the ways that they practice white supremacy and positing that non-white people are the experts all of those are dangerous lies in this system and it, white innocence it is it is a very different framework if we think about all of this even as you are right in the book like dang a lot of these drug wars or drug laws 
they are about protecting whiteness. That's almost a verbatim sentence in the book. Isn't that true, Dr. Herzberg? Yeah. That is not accidental. That is very deliberate. That's what I mean. The evidence just doesn't bear. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you have black people, they don't figure these things out until years, if at all, down the road. It's not like they knew all of this stuff in advance and get to the Mm -hmm. book as we pull it important just for listeners you'll see this pattern particularly if you hear read individuals classified as white it's in the book early i'm hopping back now go back in chronological order you write specifically whiteness or in the book you all collectively whiteness as a system does not include all white people and this is by design is that true do you think dr herzberg well it's certainly uh, it's certainly true that, I, I mean, I think that's getting at this point about how the uh, the goodies distributed by the system, as you put it, are do not go equally to everybody categorized as white. Okay, but would that mean that because those, the benefits, the power of white supremacy racism is not distributed equally. Some wh- white people are substantially more powerful than other white people, obvious, throughout the world. Does that mean that you have a certain number of white people who've been excluded from the white classification, the white race? Is that true? I mean, I don't think I know of anybody who has been excluded or uh, from the classification of a white race, I think there that the reference there is uh, people who have been excluded from many of the benefits that uh, white people typically take to themselves. Hmm. Okay. That. Certainly not all white people get the same, have the same amount of power. Even I think that's an important distinction as opposed to benefits. Not all individuals mm-hmm. classified as white have the same power. That is absolutely true. But even the least powerful of the white people, they're still white. Is that true? I mean, the least powerful of the white people, have they been excluded? Well, you know, the least, in some cases, the least powerful of the white people are dead. So I suppose in that case, uh, you know, they're, you know, I don't know what distinction the one would make, but it's certainly true that um, in any given situation, uh, being white is going to give you uh, more power than someone who's non-white in your situation. Um and I think the point we're trying to make in the book is that those differences in power between white people also matter in the story, like that they that changes how things happen and where things go. And so it's important to have a language to talk about it. It's not trying to say, you know, um, let's uh, do this this thing where we focus on the suffering of, let's say, poor white communities as a way to um, continue to 
romanticize and valorize um, the white whites in America at the expense of and to distract from the direer situations and uh, economic and in terms of access to power and other things like that of other communities. It's just that if you're trying to understand what happened, those those differences within uh, of power within the white community do have an impact on what happened. So it's important to also uh, investigate and analyze and understand them. So, you know, I can say one of the things that we're taking issue with is this um, one interpretation of the opioid crisis early on that came out of this, what's called the deaths of despair interpretation, which says, you know, like, all these white communities, they're suffering this kind of unique economic downturn in their fortunes, and that explains rising despair in these communities, and that explains why you have an opioid crisis there. And, and we're saying, well, you know, there are communities who have experienced, both in the past and the present, much direr um, circumstances economically in terms of social marginalization and things of this sort, and uh, an opioid crisis maybe didn't show up in those situations, and so what that what we're trying to um, what we're trying to do is um, provide an alternate way of understanding that um, relationship between the so let's just say um, how do you talk about a relatively poor white community that suffered from a whole lot of opioid overdoses in the late 20th, early 21st centuries. Like, how do you, how do you talk about them as compared to, like, let's say, Richard Sackler and the board of directors of Purdue? How do, we, how do we talk about the way that all of these folks were white and that that's part of the reason this whole thing worked, uh, as a matter of fact, is because all of these folks were white? And how do we, uh, how do we talk about that um, the, the power that these white people had. So, for example, the power of access to medical care, uh, the power of using um, public money to um, subsidize access to medical care. Like, that's, that's real, um, that is white power. And uh, so that's one of the things that makes the story tick uh, and at the same time, it matters that they were poor communities because that was the source of a lot of their um, experiences of suffering from whatever uh, kinds of hardship that they experienced. So this mixture of racial power and the difference between them and, like, you know, the Sackler family uh, that that helped make that aspect of the story function. So in that context. Um, it's in that context that those distinctions matter, not as part of this um, uh, game that some white people, white authors, will play of being like, well, if there, the, you know, like the existence of white suffering or white poverty or whatever somehow like disproves white supremacy, uh, that is not at all the intent of what we're writing about in the book. We're trying to explain how those kind of differences happen within white supremacy 
uh, not as something that uh, would would um, would be a counter to that. Hmm. Much obliged for your uh, response, Doctor. Herzberg, uh, the reason not to uh, belabor that specific point, uh, the reason uh, that I call attention to that is because uh, language such that whiteness as a system does not include all white people, that sort of thing to me suggests somehow these individuals, they've been decategorized, that sort of language that was used uh, previously, that their plight is somehow categorized or their plight is somehow comparable to individuals who are not white. And that point does come up a few times in the book. That's where I go back to the report that I read before. You're a white high school dropout. Mark Furman, better chances of getting employment than a black person. Even I go back, the report that we just talked about earlier this summer. Thank you to Dr. Sutherland. Maternal and infant health inequality, new evidence from linked administrative data where they had at the very beginning of the report infant and maternal health in black families at the top of the income distribution is markedly worse than that of white families at the bottom of the income mm-hmm. distribution. When I see things like that, there's no comparison to the lowest of the low individual classified as white. There's still no comparison to be, particularly if you're back of the bus, bottom of the boat, going to be classified as a nigra. There is no comparison. And it seems like just according to the health statistics, you've not been excluded from the white race, white team, you are still even getting the health benefits even at the bottom of the boat. Yes, you have white sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yes, you had some white people who died from the pharmacy. But (laughs) James Byrd Jr., we don't even remember his name. Some of these folks who died, wow, did they get memorialized? And man, it would have been Mm -hmm. way worse if they were non-white. My gosh, it could have been they died in prison Mm -hmm. or way worse. Just pointing that out as a a because that's another that's another major pattern I see where they make it about class and conflate poor white people in Appalachia with non-white people. No, that even that no, that is not an accurate comparison based on the data. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, mm. I totally that that is a you are one hundred percent right about that. Full stop. No debating any aspect of that. It, the the only reason why one would even like that they're I'm trying to put this like you can um, let's say there's a I'm gonna I'm gonna use a metaphor and if it's a bad one then then I'm gonna apologize but let's say there's a hot stove and uh, you are um, you are uh, badly burned by that stove and someone else is just lightly singed by that stove you do not compare the experience of those two people, right? There's no comparison. You can analyze uh, the stove. You can analyze the forces at play and say that, um, for a, in this case, one of the arguments of the book is that uh, racial capitalism is the source of a lot of these harms, and there is no doubt uh, who pays the greatest price for those harms and who seizes the greatest benefits 
Um, one of the arguments is, of the book is that you can see a lot, you know, within that, you can see this, this set of practices of this racial capitalism as producing harm uh, at greatly different levels in a lot of different groups. It's just, as you said, um, there is simply no comparison. Even when I was talking earlier about those, that, you know, the, um, the boundaries of who gets considered white expanding to include Southern Eastern Europeans, like it was still massively better to be considered like the wrong kind of white or off white than to be considered black. Even, uh, even at the time of the greatest degree of racial animus by the native born, you know, Protestant whites against those uh, immigrants in Southern Eastern Europe. Um, uh, the, the, um, the kind of structures of racial capitalism to, you know, is a, in an effort to try to fully understand how they work. Um, I believe that it's important to notice the people that they disprivilege without trying to draw parallels, without trying to say, oh, yeah, you know, poor white people have had it. I mean, it would be, it would be, for a historian, it would be insanity to say that poor white people have had it uh, as bad as poor people of color in the United States. It's just factually wrong. But you can understand the kinds of forces that distribute those unequal harms, and it's useful to, to be able to do that, I think. Oh, was that? Oh, I thought, okay. Uh, that that is that is a noteworthy response i'll just i'll say that he did give us the full stop at the beginning and then he gave the uh nuance i'll i'll read because this is exactly where my question is star six one if folks are listening you have a question for dr david herzberg one of the three authors of white out uh so i had to got, go back chronologically now we're back in chapter one uh the pharmacon of racial poisons and cures the book white out you write or you all write whiteness as a system does not include all white people and this is by design travis lindman a sociologist who studied the white people in rural america who were caught up with the crystal methamphetamine in the 1990s like allegedly matthew shepherd explained this when we met at a drug policy conference at the time, he was teaching at Eastern Kentucky University and documenting how poor white Appalachians were incarcerated and their children put into foster care at even higher rates than after the kinder, gentler national drug policies that followed media coverage of opioids in suburban white America. Travis had interviewed policy makers and analyzed media coverage of drug use in the predominantly white rural states of Kentucky and West Virginia, finding that the way they described poor whites who use drugs in terms of cultural depravity, laziness, inclination to have too many children, and violence was similar to the ways black and brown people were described in parts of the country that were less white. That's why I said the conflation. One might think, hey, the poor white people are treated like black people. No. Uh, the racial images deployed in drug policy are about as justifying un or inequality, Travis said, in places where poor whites are the other. Poor whites play honorary blacks in our national theater of drugs 
and blame. I said, well, because I'd never heard the term honorary blacks before. Like, wow. I normally it's honorary whites that even what you were talking about previously, honorary white is normally on the way up that ladder to being bang. I'm classified as white, but wow, I've never even heard that one. Was there conversation around that one? Use of that term honorary black? Uh, no, I don't remember having a conversation, uh, about that, about that term. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I can, I can see that section is, is skating in dangerous territory. And the only thing, you know, that I can come back to is to say that the intent is to identify like the process the the tools um you know for example characterizing a group as lazy now that has been in the case of black america that's been used as a rationale for slavery for enslavement for hundreds of years right so Mm -hmm. there is no comparison to an appalachian white community uh that is being called lazy and is not enslaved right so there is still value in recognizing that that this claim of laziness is a is a tool uh, used to um, used to um, exercise power over the group that's being called lazy, even without making a claim that everyone who's called lazy is experiencing the same thing and i and i understand uh your point that that is especially with that um with that quote that seems uh to get dangerously close to making a different kind of point um and you know i i I don't i guess that it would be better to to say that in a different way i mean and i do um I do believe, uh, at least, you know, as far as our conversations about the book and, and our intention, uh, was none of us, um, none of us believe that there is a, a parallel, you know, or any way to, to compare those experiences. Our goal was to analyze the tools the processes, the mechanisms that um, that are available to white authorities and racial capitalism to exercise power over communities, not to say that that power has been exercised uh, comparably between, for example, poor white and black communities. I see, I see. Okay. Uh, but he even acknowledged he could see my point about that paragraph i even say uh thank you for the honesty again even the song that we had in the background of our intro at the beginning was playing really soft my world is blue by the white trash clan uh even though he didn't name the group or anything but that would be you know common conflation uh happening there uh in the text you all right now i'm in uh for folks with the book perhaps since it's whiteout chapter two 
how to see whiteness. And they have a lot of this in the book where I'm kind of asking them about some of these terms and definitions because they do a lot of it. That's what the book is about. White out. What does it mean to be white? And how has that impacted the whole history of these white supremacist drug laws? That's a big part of what this book is. So I'm just, you know, questioning, going over, chatting about some of these terms. Uh, he says that <clears throat> for this is... Mm, I have the e-copies. It's further down in chapter two. Furthermore, while all people categorized as white have at some point been a part of this agenda of whiteness, they benefit only when their interests align with those of racial capital. The more privileged white people are, the more they align with capitalism based on whiteness. Hmm. Mm. that right so if I'm break this is one I'll say so break this one down to us like we are like teenagers so the first part of this you said all white people or excuse me all people categorized as white have at some point been a part of this agenda of whiteness or not you specifically but you all uh, how would you explain that to a non-white child and is that the same as saying that in some way all individuals classified as white practice racism in some way? Okay, let me see here. Would, I'm sorry, would you um, just tell me what page we're on just because that'll, that'll help me to have so, this in front of me. I, I, I apologize. No, Bert, I have the e-copy, so my pages might not necessarily correspond to the hard copy. So this is mm. chapter two, how to see whiteness yeah. and specifically, so the subsection whiteness studies Right, whiteness studies. It should yeah, be okay. About, I gotcha. It should be maybe a page or two over from there. Uh, the first or the first sentence in the paragraph is: whiteness is a core element of transactional biocapitalism. There is no principle. Gotcha. Okay, bam, right down at the bottom. So it says: furthermore, while all people categorize as mm -hmm. white, bang. Yeah. Okay. So the point in this section is that the system of whiteness doesn't necessarily uh, care about individual white people. That, um, that the system is designed to uh, redistribute wealth up and uh, you, as a white person, you partake in the goodies of the system of whiteness. Um, like what determines whether someone in the system of white supremacy gets a lot of goodies or doesn't get a lot of goodies? Uh, the, uh, the, how much power do they have to seize those goodies? You might uh, be better to say. And that um, the argument in this section is that how much power you have is connected to how actively you support the uh, upward redistribution of wealth to, um, to white people and within white people to white people with money. And so while everybody who's categorized as white benefits from whiteness, we've already established that those benefits or that power isn't evenly distributed among all white people. So what explains which white people get more power, which white people get less? Uh, 
this is making the argument that you, as a white person, you get more white power to the extent that you are uh, actively supporting or serving the purposes of that overall upward redistribution. And to the extent that you aren't helping with that, or you even stand in the way of that, then you stand to get less of that um, white power. Now, this is not intended to suggest, you know, if you if you get less of the power available to white people, that doesn't make you into someone racialized as black in America. And that's not the point of comparison. The point of comparison is to white people with more of that kind of power. Thank you for the distinction. Is it accurate? Am I reading this accurately to say if I am classified as white, male or female, gay, hetero, whatever the case may be, disabled, but if I'm classified as white, the more closely my interests align with supporting racism, white supremacy as a system, the closer my interests align with that, the more access to power I will have maybe even compensation uh, for that in a variety of ways, the closer my interests align with support of the system of white supremacy racism. Is that accurate restatement of what you all wrote? I think in general it is. The only part I wonder about is, um, is the question of interests because you're, you can serve the purposes of white supremacy without it's serving your personal interests. So, you know, you could make the argument that, um, like, let's say a community that was flooded with OxyContin in the late 1990s, that that was serving the purpose of white supremacy and that a white corporation was getting, uh, you know, re- reaping enormous profits from the sale of this, um, of a drug whose legality was kind of premised on the idea that it was going to be sold to white people and that this was somehow going to make it less dangerous. That that wasn't necessarily um, in the interests of the individuals in that community, but that didn't necessarily... Um, who I'm getting lost in this sentence here. I apologize. Let me just slug my way through it. That um, it's to the extent that they serve the purpose of whiteness, that that, uh, that, that would be the basis of the benefit rather than... Um, well, you know what? I'm I'm sorry. I'm just going to have to admit I, I wandered off in here. and Maybe I'm a little bit tired, but I, I feel like I'm not sure I know what I'm saying anymore. So I'm going to stop. Uh, and I can you can you can ask me that question again um, if because uh, I don't think I answered it. And maybe if I can uh, think a little bit more clearly and say a few uh, less words, <laughs> that might be clearer. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Talking to us like we're teenagers uh, again. Uh, my restate. So. I'm paraphrasing the section that I just read. Is it an accurate paraphrase mm-hmm. to say, if you are classified as white, my, the closer mm-hmm. my interests align with the system of white supremacy racism, the more power I will have as a white person 
maybe even be compensated in some variety of ways the closer my interests that's what you were responding to and I was saying is that an accurate paraphrase of what you all wrote you know after having said what I said I think it I think it is um, I, I think I went and explored a dead end where I was I was thinking about that word interests but I think that does capture it okay I was I was trying to feel it out like the white people because I did see mm-hmm. the settlement and you do have a number of white people who are very upset that these pharmaceutical companies took advantage of them and you know as he said a number of white people died that certainly was not in their interest you do have some whoops some white sacrifice but even that my interpretation that doesn't disprove the rule if that had been black people mm-hmm. you would not see all of this oh man this was terrible we shouldn't have done this. Oh my gosh. We got to, oh yeah, this is, yeah, we got to get these, let's get treatment and healing. This is a mental health problem. And we got, that would not be the case. They wouldn't have got no settlement. It would have just been, what? they'd have been in jail. Like I said before, they'd have been in jail. Like you do have some wife sacrifice and all the rest of it, but woof, man, like even, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, call yeah. That, well, I mean, and you don't even need to use that, that uh, wood. I mean, this is, this is the history when it has happened in those communities, that is what happened. If not this, it would have been this. It was that. And it is that today. Mm. Mm. Excellent correction. Yes, that is not hypothetical. That did happen and is. Thank you. Accuracy is important. Man, Uh, our caller, Irie in Louisiana, Cancer Alley. Did you have a question for Dr. David Herzberg? Irie. Oh, it didn't do right. Let's try it again. Oh, and there we go. Okay. Oh, okay. Hold tap. Um, good evening. So Hi. uh I'm gonna try to just ask these three. Um, you said that the system doesn't care about individual white people. The question is, is the system an entity uh of its own uh, on to itself? Um, you want, you were said you had three questions. You want me to, to go and answer that first one now? Yeah, please. Okay. Is it an entity to itself? You mean like, cause when I, I said that sentence, I made it sound like there was a, a thing that, that had its own thoughts and stuff rather than being a, a yes. collection of, of white people doing things. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, and, um, you know, sometimes it can, it can look like a thing in itself because it's behavior, because the, it's behavior, look, I just did it again, because the, the, um, the kinds of, uh, practices and consequences that come out of it are so similar over time and so consistent. But I think you're right. I mean, man, it's tricky because, um, you want to be able to use a word that can be the subject of a verb when you're writing a book and you can talk about the system uh, in this way. But um, but I'd have to say, no, it isn't a thing in itself. It is just the people who who um, inhabit it and, and make those decisions, the white people. Okay. Um, the next question is, considering that you said if a white person identifies with and basically promotes and wants to um, 
let's say, expand, maintain, or refine the system of racism, white supremacy, the more they do that, the more they're rewarded. However, you also spoke of white people in Appalachia. Do the people in the white people in Appalachia, do they um, or disagree with the system of racism, white supremacy? Is that why they were inundated or mistreated the way you mm. were talking about? Yeah, boy, that's a really good question. Not not that I'm aware of. I'm not aware that West Virginia is a hotbed of anti-racism in, in the white community there. As, uh, as, um, so the question there is, you know, it, it looks like an example where the, where the actual lives of the white people in some communities in West Virginia uh, were considered expendable by the some of the people, some of the white people making profiting from the um, profiting from white supremacy, right? So they were uh, there when there was a uh, when there was a friction, a conflict between the individual. Um, needs and well-being of actual, you know, white people in that area when they came into conflict with the the uh, goal of people with more power than them to um, to profit from selling those drugs. Uh, that was an example of this. Uh, the In that case, the system of whiteness was the tools that, for example, Purdue Pharma used to be able to get around um, the safeguards that had usually prevented mass sale of opioids. Uh, they, they used stories about whiteness. They used white supremacy to, um, to make it seem safe and like a good idea to flood those communities with pills. So that was white supremacy being used for a purpose that ended up harming those particular white people in those, you know, in those communities in West Virginia, although it was massively benefiting a whole bunch of other white people, not just the people who own Purdue Pharma, but uh, this is, you know, you're talking about drug sales rep and investors and all of this stuff. So I don't know. Uh, I, I hope that that uh, that responded to your question. I will confess I'm getting a, a little bit tired. So I, if I didn't, I, I'm going to apologize and ask you to, to help me by, by, um, Asking uh, a follow-up to that, if I didn't, if I didn't cover what you were trying to get at. Oh no, that's fine. Um, this is the last question I have, and thank you very much. Um, do you think is there a probability or a possibility that this book was written to convince the powerful white people um, not to mistreat the less powerful or powerless? white people um, well I can I can tell you that it, that was not our intention as a matter of fact our our intention was to argue with people who are making that kind of request so we the you know the biggest and most famous uh, 
way of talking about the opioid crisis for a couple of the first couple of decades was this death of despair argument. But that's what they call it, the death of despair argument. And that argument goes something like this. Once upon a time, small town, rural, white communities were healthy, loving, God-fearing, church-going places where young people had a future, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, you know, then the... uh, the uh, um, NAFTA came in and stole all the jobs, and then the big pharmaceutical companies came in like vultures and picked on the, you know, opportunistically sold these dangerous drugs to these hurting communities. And the implicit argument there is we need a return to that time when those when those communities were whole. And and what we what we're the point we're trying to make is those uh that before time that time before the uh those communities were um were built on um were built using the tools of white supremacy that their economic security to the extent that that existed uh were um were made possible by the by the power of white people and that, in fact, the same is true for those um, uh, for why Purdue Pharma and other opioid companies were able to sell there. It's because those communities still had privileged access to the med- medical system. They had better health insurance. They had better access to um, to public uh, coverage for health care, and individual doctors were more willing to take their pain seriously because of their race, because of their whiteness. And so what we're trying to do is explain how white privilege and white power contributed to the opioid crisis, because what we don't want is a return to a situation where, like, we want to help these white communities and leave everyone else still suffering from the marginalization, impoverishment, and lack of access to benefits like healthcare that um, that they have experienced. Now, I say all that. That's our intention. And, you know, uh, people read the book and can tell us how well we did with that. And you know, you've already heard in this episode a couple of times where Gus has pointed out things we said, and he's like, you know, you guys. Uh, you could have done better here, or maybe you not. You could have done better here. Maybe you got it wrong here. You lied here, and you know that's uh, we don't get to we don't get to say whether we succeeded in that goal, in our goal, um, you know. And we we I hope we get some things right in the book. Uh, it's clear that you know there there are places where I've got more thinking to do and got to learn from uh, mistakes that we made, but. Um, I, if your question is about our intentions, uh, our intention is to, uh, encourage people, authorities, particularly white people to think about the damage that has been and is being done by white supremacy in the country and to recognize that drug problems Drugs don't cause those problems. Uh, racism and white supremacy cause those problems. And if you're going to 
address drug problems, you have to do that by addressing uh, the cause, uh, and that's that system of white supremacy. Uh, you know, I'm getting less efficient as time goes on. I, I hope that answered your, your question. Much obliged, Thank Irene. you. It is. Thank you. want to make sure I get our other caller in. Uh, we aren't keeping uh, Dr. Hersberg the whole evening, so uh, our other caller who dialed in, 0356. Did you have a question for Dr. Hersberg? You should be with us. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the callers and listeners. Uh, greetings, Dr. Hersberg. Thank you for your time. Um, I just have two questions for you. Um, one, um, <clears throat> are you suggesting that whiteness is directly related to capital or monetary status and not the ability to mistreat, mistreat based on color? Um, so to me, those things are, are connected. So, uh, you know, for example, you look at the, the origins of, of modern capitalism, are they, they come from that imperial project of uh, European empires, um, uh, you know, at the, at the point of a gun, getting forced labor and stealing resources that allow them to pool capital um, that creates the basis of modern capitalism. So racial theft, it, it is, um, is central to why, as, as I understand it, why white supremacy exists, and that and that necessarily involves the the mistreatment uh, of people not categorized as white. So I I guess I I don't see that as an either or. I, I see those as as part and parcel of the of the same thing. Um, is that is that um, does that answer? The question about uh, your your question. Um, just for clarity, um, so you're are you suggesting that whiteness and the ability to mistreat are the same, or the capital and the mistreatment is the same? Just for clarity, sorry. Okay, so whiteness. Um, I think that. Um, Let's see. I guess I'm saying that in the that as I understand it, the theory of racial capitalism says that the categories of whiteness and the category of capitalists came into being together, so that uh, it's not that power to mistreat isn't inherent to just one of them. It's like either inherent to whiteness or inherent to um, having capitalist power. That that they are. Um, they are the same thing, that the ability to have capitalism is founded on the, um, uh, the, the theft of labor and resources, and that the mechanism for doing that was by inventing racial categories that, that justified that mistreatment. So I guess I'm, I'm saying both, unless I'm misunderstanding the... Um, the premise of the question. Um, that suffices. Thank you. Um, my last question. Um, can whites who are not treated as white or treated less white, can they change their status? And if so, how? 
I'll mute out and thank you for your time. I'm sorry, wait, uh, before you go, I didn't, I missed that first few words of that. If, uh, what was the first part of that question? Can white people who are treated mm -hmm. less white or don't, as mm -hmm. you say, benefit from whiteness as someone who it is benefiting from it, can those white mm -hmm. people change their status? And if so, how? Yeah, so um, we have the the best uh, the best historical examples that we have are about groups of people who are now considered white who, who didn't used to be considered white by the you know by the uh, most empowered white people in America. Um, there's it's the story of the uh, Irish immigrants and their descendants in the in the 19th century and the um, southern and eastern European immigrants at the Your turn parents? of the 20th century and uh, uh, well, those would be my grandparents, but yes, uh, my grandparents. And the story uh, there is that um, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily said in these exact words, but there was a deal that was made, which is essentially like, do you want to do you want to become white? And becoming white means enforcing white supremacy. That's the deal. And so you have these groups that have that had experienced um, some degree of racial discrimination uh, being offered membership in the category of whiteness, full membership in the category of whiteness. And the price to be paid for that is to accept the, to accept that like white is even a, is even a thing. You know what I mean? Like there isn't a, a white landia, you know, somewhere that that you know, white is a is a is a political category, and what it means is um, what it means is uh, establishing a racial hierarchy where if you if we're going to accept you as white, then you got to believe that whiteness exists, that whiteness is superior to the other groups, and and you have to be willing to use uh, that white power to support this uh, this hierarchy. So you see. This happens with um, that this kind of trade, this transaction takes place with those groups, uh, and they and that is what seals the deal, so to speak, of them becoming white. And there's all kinds of practical things that happened about you know uh, voting and political coalitions, all this. But it but it you know from twenty thousand feet, that's the deal. And so that if there's somebody who has kind of has some potential to be recognized or categorized as white um, for whatever way that potential might be um, defined at that time, you know, the, the traditional historical way in America has been you make that potential into an actuality by actively supporting racism. Actively supporting racism. Mm. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. Our, Lauren, out here in the Pacific Northwest with us, did you have a question for Dr. David Herzberg? Uh, Lauren? Yes, sir, I do have a question. Um, good evening, and thank you for coming on to the show. Um, seems like you're getting a little tired, so you don't need to give me any long answers. Short ones will do. My first question is, which group of people established, expanded, maintained, 
and refine the system of racism, white supremacy? Is that white people or non-white people? Uh, that would be white people. Okay. Um, which group of people do you think know the most about racism, what it is, and how it works? Do you think that's white people or non-white people? Yeah, um, I suppose that yeah, I mean that's a that's a question I. I guess I, I'm not qualified to answer. <laughs> you know, uh, you know that's 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 different than the first question, which is uh, kind of a asks a question of material fact, but asking about uh, how to characterize people understanding in a in a really broad way. I guess you know. Uh, I'm going to say I, I don't. I don't necessarily feel like I'm. I'm an expert in any sense in, in that question. Uh, I mean, in my. Okay. Well. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm. I'm sorry. Um. I. I wasn't saying you had to be an expert. Just what do you think? Who do you think knows the most about racism? The people who practice yeah. racism or the people who don't? I mean, in. In my experience, I have gained a lot of understanding from talking about race with people of color. And that that I haven't gotten by talking to other white people. And, you know, I, I think that... Um, uh, that there is, you know, there's a uh, there's a theory called standpoint theory that uh, that holds that um, people who are subjected to systems of power gain insight and perspective on those systems unavailable to the people who um, who impose those systems. But you're asking who understands it better. And I mean, there's just a whole lot to know about it. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a, a whole lot to know. So for example, someone who works at a bank making decisions about home loans you know, and who is like a, you know, every every bank that I'm aware of has um, has uh, made those loans unequally, made them in ways to support residential segregation, and so on and so forth. Like clearly, they know more about how that uh, how that practice works, right? They, you know, because they do it every day. And the the ways that I practice white supremacy as a white person, those are things that I know about, but I don't know about everything. I, you know what I mean? Like uh, in the same, you know, I, I've never 
made a decision about a bank loan. So that's an aspect of white supremacy that I don't know a lot about. Um, and so I might, for example, have learned a lot if I had, um, you know, just to give an example, been um, read a, a Black Panther Party newspaper in, uh, you know, like 50 years ago, explaining how that, uh, how those practices of redlining, redlining worked. But that, but that's just because the system is so big and has so many moving parts that there's just a heck of a lot to know about it. And I suppose one of the things that, that I didn't have the practice of was, um, thinking about it uh, consciously and and understanding it. And to me, uh, in my experience, the people that I've talked to that have the most um, the most insight and the most um, the most knowledge about this, about how to how to think about it, have been, you know, the people of color that I've talked to. But I'm not trying to make any grand claim about uh, about uh, people who know better and people who know worse. Uh, you know, on these in these big broad categories, it just seems like a really complicated question to me. And and I I think you know I, I understand your point. And I've got, and I'm going to be thinking about it at uh, this point about uh, that vote that Gus made, and that I think you're you're trying to get across to me, and that I am um, I'm going to that I'm going to keep thinking about because it seems really important is to recognize the ways that um, that I'm not seeing some kinds of knowledge that I have and that white people have. Uh, and I'm and I'm focusing on this other kind of knowledge, you know, um, of self-awareness. So I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm meandering a little bit, uh, but this is, you know, this is a, an instance where, you know, I'm 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 learning something from this, and I'm, you know, maybe it's something that that I should have known already, and uh, or maybe it's something that I like. How do you say that I I know it already if I'm if if it uh, if to me it seems like I'm I'm having something uh, explained to me that I didn't fully understand before, uh, you know I'm I'm a, I'm experiencing that as learning. Sir, I just want to be clear. Are are you are you going to answer the question? Was it white people or non-white people? I, if you need a short answer, I will say I don't know. Okay. Thank you. Much obliged, much obliged Lauren. Uh, we got all of our callers. Uh, I, Man, for this program, if I can get in before you go, two questions, and we'll let, I'm on the West Coast at Seattle, so the sun is still out, uh, beautiful, all that uh, good stuff. Um before we allow you to enjoy your Tuesday evening, question one of my last two. Number one, or even 
I'm just, this isn't a question. This is just based off her last question. Just make sure I get to show. I did read the whole book and we have been talking about it throughout in chapter two, how to see whiteness doctor or the co-authors along with Dr. Herzberg difficult with those like multi-author books. Uh, these deliberate, I always highlight that word in books on racism, super important. Every time these deliberate strategies are imperatives of racial capitalism pharmaceutical industry profits hinge on accurate racial readings of segments of consumers who are predisposed to buy their products have the means to buy them whether with private income or public subsidy and provide the easiest paths around regulations that could otherwise retard or restrict their sales accurate racial readings ah 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 super important i think i know who's in that group with pharmaceuticals who accurate yes i know who's there uh one question the racial demographics this is another one that i had to even switch up my highlight color uh, you all talk about racial demographics in a number of uh, ways in the book. I even picked up a new book, uh, Linda Alcost, The Future of Rightness. You cite it right, or you all cite it writing, white Americans are conscious of their shrinking numerical dominance and feel called to defend their economic and political privilege in new ways. Even that would be wow white people are informed about this and not just informed they're conscious and they feel called I did not say Peyton Gendron I said Peyton Gendron Buffalo indeed feel called to defend their economic and political privilege in new ways that is stunning is this this us or is this the this is white out this is chapter 6 buffinephrine's silent white revolution and this is in the subcategory racial capital in medication Mm -hmm. assisted treatment it's the very first paragraph the very last sentence as Linda Alcoff writes in the future of whiteness white Americans are conscious of their shrinking numerical dominance and feel called to defend their economic and political privilege in new Ways that even sounds like they might not be motivated to replace white supremacy with justice, like they want to see and do everything they can to keep it here. Like, ooh, that's why I had to read. Like, man, what what do you think? Um, what do I do? I think that that white authorities want to replace white supremacy with justice. Is that what you're asking? No, no, no. That this doesn't say white authorities. This says white Americans. So this is just talking about regular old individuals classified as white in this part of the world it says that they are conscious of their shrinking numerical dominance and feel called to defend their economic and political privilege in new ways. This makes it seem like white people at large have no interest in producing justice. They want white supremacy to stay and even view their numerical decline view that as a threat to white power that seems even to be a big part of this white despair that you talked about earlier what what do you think is that accurate is that what's happening to some degree yeah i mean to the extent that you don't want to 
characterize any large group of people as being exactly the same. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, if you look at if you look at, um, I mean, I, I think that's I don't think that's a particularly um, like innovative reading of of white culture in America right now that there's you know these um, what they what gets called populism in a lot of cases uh, in the you know and uh, you see as examples through like Trump and, and these kind of things of of kind of explicit political mobilizing around whiteness and and around um, and around the uh, supposed threat to whiteness uh, you know posed by uh, diversification of the country and this kind of um, I mean it, it's not that in itself isn't actually new, but the the techniques and tools for doing something about it are, you know, they're, um, they're, those are always being updated and changing over time. So they're, you know, they're new, they're characteristic of our era. But, right, I mean, that, I, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's a, that's not our interpretation. That That's, I, I think, a pretty widely, um, uh, like widely believed interpretation of what is motivating some kinds of white political organization right now. Would you do you agree? Did, did this uh, did this seem to be um, uh, surprising? I don't hear that, and the way that uh, Alcott, I have not read her book, but the way that she states it, and being so. Frank, the few uh, that white Americans. That's very. That's not white conservatives. That's not white Republicans. That's not whites in rural Appalachia. She's white Americans. Period. That they, in general, across the spectrum, are concerned about this. They're conscious of this and are working to do something about it. No, I do not hear people stated that. Frankly, like you were saying before, mm. to speak broadly, I do not hear people state it that broadly because that undermines the notion like what I think Ivory asked about this book, like, hey, white people get this information and they'll stop practicing racism. They'll start trying to help non-white people and all of that. That very much contradicts contradicts with what's quoted here, cited here from Alcott's work, Alcott's work uh, that no. White people at large in this part of the world and maybe beyond, they're not interested in that. They see their decline numerically. They're upset about it. We want white supremacy and white power to remain forever. What are we going to do? Let's get Trump. Make America greater. Even I was seeing all that in despair. Like that sounds exactly like make America great again. Exactly. Like verbatim. But I just, I don't hear people stated that explicitly. Mm-hmm. I do absolutely agree that that's oh yeah, I think that's happening. I just don't it doesn't get verbalized. <laughs> I hear uh, you. Yeah, well I mean like to be really clear, like something as you know and as you've been saying in a bunch of different ways, like white supremacy is not an, not an accident and it didn't happen in spite of white people not wanting it to be there. Like it, it is definitely the product of what white people want. Like, there's no other possible explanation for it. So, yeah. Mm, that's, I don't hear that get broadly uh, stated. And even that's the type of thing I say we should mm-hmm. keep in mind. If are white people going to stop practicing racism, that sort of response would make me think, no. Ooh, 
that gives an even greater burden to how we go about trying to solve this problem, which I think is important. People should think about that before we last one uh, and very much related. And you'd already talked about this in terms of whose pain is valued. I'd heard this before, but just not in the pharmaceutical context. I'd heard or actually take that back. Yes, I had. Yes, I had. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it that way when I started out, though. But you write this is, or you all write this is in Chapter Five, OxyContin's racial precision. That's another one which which suggests that you have you're not just a little bit informed about racism. You have pinpoint, precise, mm-hmm. calculated, scientific understanding of white supremacy, racism, and how to employ that to your advantage. I do not know black people who have that sort of information. You mm-hmm. all right. How then did Oxycontin slip past the watchdogs in the 1990s? It did so under the white racial cover of the pain advocacy movement. Pain had been a focus of medical and public concern and of political battles in America since the end of World War II. During this period, traditional racist assumptions were increasingly embedded in medical and cultural concepts of pain. The prejudices could be quite bald. Mm. White Americans believed, and that's another one that's so broad, white Americans believed quite simply that racial minorities experienced pain less intensely, if at all. White physicians were no exception. The false wisdom of racialized pain was taught in medical school as well, medical apartheid, thus a seemingly race-neutral or universal discourse about pain was ideologically and in practice understood to be about white people. I think that is so important and very much related to the previous uh, question because white people do not empathize with black people. That's it. As you say, it's understood the only people's pain we are concerned about Matthew Shepard is white people that I think is another one to think about that is a big part of the whole sad saga of the war on drugs and drug laws in this part of the world whose pain matters white people not black people is that correct Dr. Herzberg it's correct and it's and it's just and it's just awful I mean it's, I mean, so much of it is, but it's, it's awful. Is that, is that an accurate, I guess, uh, to broaden that point out in terms of how Oxycontin, the pharmaceutical companies, we look to the pain of white people with sympathy and we'll manage that. They're not concerned about black people. Is that something we should be thinking about broader ramifications with regards to now how much sympathy the white people really have for black people with regards to racism and producing justice? Is that something accurate we should be thinking about as well? I mean, I think it I think when you look at the overall track record of the last whatever hundreds of years in American society, it would not be wise to assume the goodwill of white people on questions of race. I mean, that would be, you would lose that bet many times over, over the course of American history. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, it, it seems so true that it's hard to understand how one would argue with it, you know, that this, that these kinds of inequalities didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, they were they were created and they were maintained over time against fierce resistance. And that speaks to that speaks to uh, intent. That speaks to purpose. And you know, uh, like I like I say, you're not gonna. Um, we're talking about we're talking at the level of categories here, and at the level of categories, that's what whiteness has been about. You know, that's what that's why you stitch together uh, all these different people of different heritages, different languages, different fighting tons of wars against each other, and you call them like as if they all belong to one uh, happy unified group of people called white. Like that's a political move, and the political purpose is um, race hierarchy. So, yeah. Right on, right on. The book we have been uh, discussing, White Out, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Uh, again, the all of the authors, uh, lead author, Dr. Helen Hansen, uh, Jules Netherland, and then our guest, David Herzberg. Uh, just for giggles, last thought, the word count in the book I thought was hmm, significant. The word capitalism is in the book 99 times and in the uh, full title. The word privilege is in the book 77 times. The word racism is in the book 66 times. The word white supremacy is in the book 10 times. The word bright, nine times. And often bright people with bright futures. One to thank on. Much obliged for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening with us, Dr. Herzberg. I learned a ton uh, from the book and our chat this evening, although I still do think white people are most informed about racism just based on logic. But thank you so much for your uh, patience, mm-hmm. your responses. Uh, learned a ton, sir. Well, I certainly learned a lot from this conversation, too, and I'll be thinking about it for, for quite some time. I appreciate you're taking the time to have the conversation with me and I hope that it proved useful to, um, to your listeners. I hope so as well, man. Keep up, uh, all of the writing. He has lots of books on this subject matter, racism and, uh, drugs, white market drugs, happy pills in America from midtown to Prozac white out as well. Again, Dr. David Herzberg. Thank you kindly. Enjoy the rest of your evening, sir. Yeah, you do too. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. The cows. Right. Yes, sir. Context of white supremacy. Uh, be here again on uh, Thursday. The book. Oh man, man. So much. I had other. I had other notes. I didn't think it would take so long to get through some of the uh, earlier content. Just the, even the definition like took a little bit more time than uh, I anticipated. But old Columbine came up in this book explicitly. And we talked about Columbine yesterday. We had old tacky Stephen Singular on the program, Suspected Racist. It's like, oh, I'm not an expert and all that. He wrote a whole book. You got them mentioned in here calling Eric Harris Mozart of psychopathy. Columbine comes up explicitly in the book that we read today, Whiteout. So this is in chapter six, Bupinephrine's silent white revolution now dig this david pollock a psychiatrist and health policy fellow 
charged with crafting health legislation for Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy was the Democratic lead in writing the bill that ultimately became Data 2000. The bill was initially designed to reauthorize the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in order to boost support for community mental health and PTSD treatment in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995. That is tweaker Timothy McVeigh. That's in Andrew Gumbel's book that he was going through withdrawal symptoms on death row. And the Columbine High School Massacre of 1999. As Pollock told us in an interview, the unnamed buffenuffrin provision legalizing office-based Schedule 3 opioid maintenance was not originally a part of the bill that he was designing. He first learned about buffenuffrin at a lobbying lunch with Reckitt Binkisner pharmaceutical CEO Charles O'Keefe. I'll stop there, but just the fact that in response, again, paint the fact that in response to mostly white people saying they have PTSD from Timothy McVeigh, vodka, Reb, white bomber men, they changed drug policies so that whites could have access to sedatives I changed my highlight color for that. Are you seeing now again? He joined us from Buffalo. So did they change laws for all the black people who got PTSD in Buffalo and at large from watching what happened at tops? I'm having difficulty sleeping. They just got that lawsuit a couple days ago where the uh, victims filed a lawsuit against social media companies and all of that for Peyton Gendron and his family allowing all of this. Even white people saying, man, I feel guilty. I feel like I survived just because I'm a white person, which is true. He did apologize for shooting a white person in the store. So. Anywho, uh, but man. That Columbine, man, I'm so glad that we read that. Uh, The overlap is um, and in fact, it's even beyond that, because it's the same thing that I talked about yesterday that is an enormous theme in this book we just didn't get time to talk about that uh, that white people their pain matters their brain matters He, they cite in the book George H.W. Bush was president 1988 he declares the 90's the decade of the brain encourage all this research and understanding of how the brain works and all the rest of this. They got big charts and news articles and they got a big photo op of that in the book, the decade of the brain. When they start, when it got away from black people or crack addicts, remember Dr. Sutherland, she was with us. She talked about her family member. I think it was her nephew. She, she kept saying that he has a tiny brain, tiny brain. That's a wife you've been saying forever. Little pecan sized Negro brains. That's all we got crack babies that's what they've been saying about us forever for white people because they are humans they got brain computers it became a brain problem a neuroscience issue I've been saying I want to go to the neuroscience conference this fall that's right there and that's Columbine Sue Klebal said that Eric and Dylan were victims of their brain 
that even that languaging where white people we started the program where he said that white people fall into drug distribution Dylan and Rev they were victims too white people are always victims it doesn't matter what they do how many narcotics they sell take bomb the school they are always victims how is that come on man this is the sound clip just reminding folks because this is a huge theme in the book in terms of uh, brain this is the drug problem is now a problem because white people their addiction is just a, a neuroscience issue and we can treat that so they can go back and be productive white citizens that's even an idea in the book explicitly we can treat them we can get them all fixed up so they can go back out and be good productive white men white women in the system of white supremacy now I'm talking about niggers like that and the lost productivity that we have because of narcotics let's see we'll hear real quick Sue Klebo quick break and then we'll hear folks they have thoughts on what they heard from Dr. David Herzberg context of white supremacy white people and their brain computer this is old Sue Klebo how have you come to terms with what Eric did and what Eric's role is the way I have come to terms with it is to um, really look again at the issue of brain function and brain health and although it may be uncomfortable for people to hear this, and I certainly understand that it might even make people feel angry, but from what I have learned in all the research that I have done, I believe that both Dylan and Eric were victims of their own dysfunctional brains. I believe that um, to what extent they had access to tools of self-governance and conscience I don't think they had access to those tools to the same degree that the rest of us do. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they are comfortable. See, so give them some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by, in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. 
But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way. Context And uh, indirectly see ourselves that way. Uh, got too early. There we go. Context of... White Supremacy, be here Thursday, Catherine Massey Book Club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Sue Klebold, marching towards the conclusion. Uh, I have been thinking of next book, although I do not ask for listeners or I do not solicit suggestions from listeners about the book club, Man in the High Castle, uh, and we don't vote anymore. I will have to think because we are getting on the close to the end. I don't know if we should be reading Columbine forever. I was thinking since we're reading parents, Jeffrey Dahmer's father did write a book. I don't know if that's the most important thing that we should read, but that was one I was thinking about. And then Leo Felton's, if we're doing our bomber, we were talking about Leo Felton earlier this year. He does have a, or I guess that'd be two biographies. So, Live either way, but yes, I was thinking. Leo Felton, bomber. Jeffrey Dahmer's dad. Mm. I have to ponder. Anyway, uh, quickly, today, August uh, 22, 2023, so I've been told, Anthony Devron Payne, not forgotten. I'm moving to, or I'm walking on campus, University of Washington here in Seattle. They have a placard. I would have taken a picture, uh, but I had tossed my phone in my backpack. We had the program today, so I really didn't have a lot of time to lollygag and fidget around and grab and snap and all that. So I just forget it. I'll do it later. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow if it's still there. But they had a sign up, and it was listing the number or prominent so-called alumni of the University of Washington. And the first name on the list was Bruce Lee. And he did go to school here. He didn't graduate, if that means anything, but he did attend uh, this specific campus, the Seattle campus, which I knew. But when I saw that, I was so appalled because non-white people, students, fellow uh, alumni, uh, fellow alumnus at the University of Washington, I'm not, did not attend here, but different non-white male who did. He, for years, he and others, worked to get a Bruce Lee memorial on campus and pointed out as an act of white supremacy, pointed out them not having any sort of marker, placard, something to acknowledge that, oh yeah, Bruce Lee international icon, he did actually go to school here proud husky right that you don't have anything to acknowledge that and in fact in pointing this out he did tours I took the tour he did tours of the campus to show them all of the countless and they've got more now all of the many many monuments to white people that they have all over the campus white men white women he pointed out they have statues on campus to white people who were 
not never did not take one class one credit nothing they didn't audit the class nothing matter of fact they weren't even U.S. citizens they weren't even born in fact in the western hemisphere but they got a statue on campus why classified as white and even more they said because they have a lot of international students they wanted to have a few statues of white people placed on campus so that some of the international white students could feel oh look they've got Hans up oh wow okay the Seattle place is alright think I'll stick around do some learning Bruce Lee was a student here and his ease I mean I looked at that list there's no contest he he would easily anywhere in the world would be the most recognizable name like oh wow Bruce Lee amazing and not, he had to beg it was like eh. oh and the, like, they had lame excuses white people had, I mean extra lame like well you know if you want to be technical about it he didn't even graduate from here so I don't know that means he's kind of like an honorary alumnus like seriously these were some of the lame excuses that they gave like for years I'm not even about statues which is what I said at the time like hey no statues let's you know just go about the business of producing justice but I mean dang they could have something it should not be there's no way that you should come here for four years and not be aware that oh dang Bruce Lee that's a man look right on he walked through some of the same pathways and hung out looked at the columns and saw Mount Rainier and all that like wow all right enter the dragon be the water yeah yeah go to the Bruce Lee garden yeah nah nah and they still I think they have something at Odegaard I'd have to even go back to see if it's permanent because they still don't even really have anything that's like prominent the, I mean in particularly the status of Bruce Lee total global system anyway our program for today quick tidbits my thoughts and then we'll see if folks who with us if they have anything they would like to learn one buckets of words we could have covered so much more because there's so much information in the book we could have covered so much more uh, if Dr. Uh, Herzberg uh, if he could have just been more direct some of that might just that's white people practicing racism white supremacy uh, that's why we've had that sound sound effect uh, for I don't know at this point like a good decade uh, or more you're just saying just buckets and buckets of words but that's why it's there. That's why we played it for so long. Uh, because, man, we really could have got through a lot more. I think I asked him at the beginning, like, honest, direct answer and all of that. Should have definitely got the sound clip in while he was here. But we could have covered a lot more. And even for, I don't even have any doubts, numerous times when he did all of that talking and even talked himself, he said, into a dead-end metaphor, in my view, he was practicing white supremacy racism and there's not even another logical alternative you can go to the very beginning with the definition he said I would agree with the caveat and he goes into all that man man whiteness island I'm going to tell you all there is a time period before Mr. Fuller, words are important, metaphors, 
I'm like, yeah, whiteness, that's right, that's right. They get voted up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've seen that. Yep, they sure do. They're calling. Vote them right up. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Decategorized. That's what he said. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. They sure do. What? We had uh, a victim, I suspect, said he was white identified, who said, is this an interrogation? Yes. Yes, because that should never be surprising. A white person saying something like that. Whiteness Island. When you ask about a definition for racism and that's part of their response to tell you this is the one part of your definition that I don't agree with. Whiteness Island. You can get kicked off, decategorized. You say, wait, wait a minute. Where's Whiteness Island at? Oh, yeah, my bad. Yeah, yeah, they don't what is decategorized? Can you be decategorized as a white person? Oh, yeah. Two inaccuracies, and you're supposed to be picking out where I was wrong, and then we get a rewind. No, it's accurate. That happened repeatedly to come back again with the white people when their interests align with the system of white supremacy racism. They come up, get more power get all the compensation and resources goodies make it simple their interests align with the system of white supremacy well, what they say, you know you got the, the, the white people in Appalachia that's the one where you got to the dead end like eh, nah, 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 nah. yeah you do have white sacrifice thank you Mr. Fuller for the concept yeah but even then even then you are way better off than niggers. You're still white. You ain't been decategorized. Even if you're on Oxycontin. Even if you're on crank. Heroin. Whatever it is. You're still not a nigger. You got a brain and can and should be redeemed if possible. Jesse Pinkman. Let's see. Other quick important. Iris question. I didn't even, I was fumbling with my headphones. I like to get myself readjusted so I can be focused. Bang. When we get a person to call in so I can do the last par- portion of the broadcast. So I thought her question was, she asked him, is whiteness a thing? He said, oh, oh, yes, yes. It's white people. That right there. I don't use that term whiteness on the program. Dr. Welsing told us explicitly. She said, what are you on this program 2010 she said what do you mean whiteness are you talking about cotton candy sheets clouds what are you talking about I'm talking about the system of white supremacy racism terrorism that's something definition individual a global system of people classified as white not whiteness and even that with the privilege part because that's consistent as well They don't get to the mistreatment part. They don't get to the practice racism part. They get to the benefits privilege. How did you get all of that? Mistreating Negras. Let's see. The he mentioned Travis Lindman. That's the portion where they talked about the poor white people being uh, like Negras. In their, that's why I said that is ridiculous and that that is so common they, class is in this book so many times I couldn't count now sometimes it's because they're talking about 
the classes of drugs, right? They have Schedule One and all that. So that's where it is sometimes. But then other times, it's talking about middle class and all of that. Mr. Fuller has that in the word class, word guide. Do not use middle class and all of that. All of that, in my view, is deliberate racism, white supremacy. It is confusion. It's not racism. It's really about class. That is not true at all. It's not even close. But that's another one that confuses many non-white people, victims of racism, where we end up thinking, yeah, Matthew Shepard is a victim. He's gay. They're mistreated like us. He's a hillbilly white boy. He's mistreated like us. No, no, not even close. Not the lamest gay, disabled white female in West Virginia, even she, whatever pronouns. No, not a nigra, not by a long shot. Excellent question. I received, she came back. She said, so the, the white hillbillies, they got them on all the, the crank, toxic cotton, all the rest of it. You think they did this because they want to produce justice? Oh, 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 that was a good one. That was a good question. Ooh, ooh. No, no, I do. I do not think the white hillbillies want to produce justice. No, no. And I've never heard anyone say that either, that out in Appalachia, this is why this looks this way. If you want to get on white people's bad side, act like you want to do right by the nigra, and you too could look like that. I've never heard that. No. No, no. White people do mistreat other white people. White sacrifice that don't make them niggers. Honorary black—that really is the term. I'm, that's why I say we could have got to a lot of other things, but it was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, honorary black. What? What? White people get excluded? What? Deca- white this island? Like whoa, 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 <laughs> like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Oh, and then we got Lawrence. Man, I thought that she said. Who does the refining here in the system? Quick. No pussyfooting. Oh, it's white people for sure. Yes, 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 indeed. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So who is more informed? White people? Negros. Ooh, 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 asking good questions. Wow. He backed around because I thought he was going to say, you got me, you got me, you colored, tricky colored folks tonight, you got me. And he said, you know, I don't feel qualified to answer. I said, oh my God, I put my, (laughs) I said, see, that's why I can't do the Zoom and stuff. Dang, that Coon Gus is acting a fool. Why is he, he didn't even sit, what? That's a, yep, can't do. I just have to mute that way I can, you know, do whatever and then get my composure back and rejoin. But I did put my, ah, I thought he was going to say it. Eh, eh, eh. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then he just came back around the long way. He did some buckets and buckets of words that come back around. He said, you know, now that I think about it, I have learned a lot from the colored. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. You just, ah, ah. the idiots about racism, white supremacy have to be the non-white people and it said in the book so many times scientific precise knowledge 
of white supremacy racism to make profits from it. I don't know any non-white people who have precise scientific information about white supremacy racism to reliably make profit from it. If you know of such a person, man, we need to go just listen to their program or read their book or whatever, follow them around like forever. Anywho, we'll pause there. I thought those were, uh, I I feel compelled as well. uh, James Burr Jr., very important. That's Hillbilly White People right there. Matthew Shepard, if you've not read that book, The Book of Matt, that should be thought of every time that they mention that and omit James Byrd Jr.'s name. Matthew Shepard was not even killed because he is so-called gay, drug deal gone bad amongst Hillbilly White People. 2016 broadcast with Stephen Jimenez Uh, and John Patash I was thinking of that too white people come and deliberately dump drugs on black people to keep us from producing justice that's the whole theme of Dr. or excuse me John Patash not a doctor John Patash's book FBI's war against Tupac Shakur and black leaders getting black people on all kinds of drugs to disrupt our brain computers so we will not be able to produce justice that also is a huge component of this conversation that's not in their book unless I missed it but I don't think so but that is I think important as well it's not just racist laws and all of that you have a deliberate chemical and biological warfare targeting black people even down to the menthol cigarettes folks who dialed in thoughts from Dr. David Herzberg, white man. Hello, Maddie Harris. Cancer Alley, Irie. Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening again. Um, so I'll make it quick. Uh, I really did want to ask an, uh, another question, which was, would have been, was the um, opioid um, epidemic, I'm using air quotes, uh, was part of that reason because of how medication was dispersed to military members and veterans? Because, I mean, you know, when I was in the military, they, they threw opioids at me, and then they also threw them at other people, and it was a, a colloquialism they would call, for instance, like Motrin, vitamin M, you know, because they they just, they gave it to you like, oh, my throats are here. Here's some Motrin. I sprained my ankle. Here's some Motrin. You know, my eyes hurt. I've been staring at a screen too long, Motrin. And then I saw for myself how they gave me like, um, you know, oxycodone and Percocet and other stuff. And other people as well were getting it like it was nothing And I was kind of formulating over time that perhaps it was a response partly to or as well to, um, like you said, pain matters, white people's pain matters. And a lot of people that were coming or making it known that they were in pain, you know, military members and veterans, especially, you know, during, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom and stuff. But the thing that stopped me from asking that um, 
and real quick, I'm sorry, I know I'm deviating, but I know he's mentioned like the people in Appalachia and stuff, but I, I, I thought I saw another correlation, in other words, to another set of white people who aren't powerful, you know, being used, uh, mistreated by the powerful white people, you know, in opioids. But the more he kept talking, it sounded, I'm like, hmm, I just, I didn't, it didn't sound like the book was written to produce justice for in, for everyone. It just sounded like, hey, you're doing things to us that's very, very similar to what you do. People we've classified as not only not white, but black. And um, then when you talked or spoke with him about his parents uh, saying, hey, be careful because somebody's going to be able to detect that you're not really white, you know, that also triggered that thought process like he subconsciously has had a, a, a history of being cautious about being mistreated by other white people. And then we have this book about white people mistreating other white people. And then he also said, he said something like, I'm paraphrasing, how, how do you explain or how do you report that there are white people, you know, in pharmaceutical companies doing this to other white people? And I'm like, hmm, like, what do you mean? How? You just do it. You just, you just get the data and then you write it up and you publish it. What do you mean? How? And and then I started into it and like, are you afraid? Like, and, and I think that's a possibility that he probably may be subconsciously afraid, you know, to report stuff like this because he feels like he can be mistreated. And that's why I really think that that's what this is. He doesn't want white people to be mistreated. If you're white, you're supposed to be white. And that's supposed to be the end of it. Um, whether or not you have capital, whether or not you have wealth, that white supremacy and that white ethnicity, because I don't say whiteness, being classified as white is your currency, your global currency with the strongest exchange uh, metaphor, with the strongest ability to produce injustice happening in the continental United States of America and like Europe. And that's all I really want to say. So thanks for that. Now run to my phone and meet the line. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, I will, to the first part of your question, I guess the question that you did not answer, uh, there's lots of information in this book. I did learn quite a bit um, about white supremacy racism with regards to the history of drug laws in the U.S. specifically, and it does even go beyond the U.S. and other countries and how things are dealt with it. The racism even continues there. <laughs> it goes beyond the, anyway. Um, we could have covered a lot more, like I said, if he had not, uh, been so loquacious unnecessarily perhaps practicing racism I think logically at certain points but we could have covered a lot more of the details of the book one of them specifically about what she said with uh, drugs being targeted at veterans because they would have benefits and injuries to boot uh, to deal with long term even uh, one they have images of a of older white women, when I say older, like fifties and up that their pain matters and they 
use war or veteran the veteran aspect comes in with them is they'll portray them as they are widows of the greatest generation like World War II that sort of thing or Vietnam or whatever it is whatever era and <clears throat> and so you made the great sacrifice and held down the homestead and all that and now you got whatever pain arthritis or what have you your pain matters white woman and they got a picture of a white woman next to a image of like uh, combat war scene and her white husband who's probably dead by now from 30 years earlier that's one of the images that they have a lot of uh, these ad- pharmaceutical advertisements over the years and how they are a part of the racism. So that's the image. So to her point specifically, they write, this is in the chapter Oxycontin, oh, what I said, the chapter names Oxycontin's racial precision. So they write, uh, A second social figure that became a face of the trustworthy patient was the wounded veteran whose sacrificial injuries conferred a heightened moral need for pain medication and who non-coincidentally enjoyed subsidized access to opioids through U.S. veterans insurance plans. Over the course of the 1990s and 2000s, images of wounded white veterans suffering with chronic pain cropped up in the pages of medical journals just as sales reps flocked in their hundreds to veterans clinics and hospitals where they had been especially trained to talk to prescribers about their clientele's trustworthiness injuries and insurance coverage footnote in 2009 Purdue sponsored a book entitled Exit Wounds, a survival guide to pain management for returning veterans and their families. Though the book was presented as the personal story of a wounded white veteran, the book has white, Derek McGinnis, the author, was actually employed by the American Pain Foundation, an organization that received millions of dollars from Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Footnote, in this self-help guide, For managing injury-related pain, McGinnis tells the story of how opioid pain medications helped to turn his life around, emphasizing the benefits of opioid pain medications throughout. The pain-relieving properties of opioids are unsurpassed, yet, despite their great benefits, opioids are underused. For a number of reasons, healthcare providers may be afraid to prescribe them and patients may be afraid to take them. At the core of this wariness is the fear of addiction, so I want to tackle this issue head on. Long experience with opioids shows that people who are not predisposed to addiction, they add emphasis to that because they say that that is code people who are not predisposed to addiction are white. The people who are negras are unlikely to become addicted to opioid pain medications. Inhering within this injured veteran's firsthand assurance that opioids are safe is a second and equally important message that opioids are safe for most reliable implicitly white patients but not for all risky implicitly non-white people 
And I'll stop there. And they even have a picture of that book, Exit Wounds, uh, by Derek McGinnis. And it shows him, it looks like he probably got an IED or something and had to have a leg amputated. And it shows him in a race or what have you. So he's able to do all that with the Oxycontin, I guess. But yes, that is addressed exactly uh, and how that also was a part of the proliferation of all this Oxycontin in the 90s and 2000s uh, to Irie and even to her to her other point I think that is fascinating his concern about if you're white you're not supposed to be bullied or mistreated given what he shared at the beginning I don't know how many times where he does interviews where he gets asked about that specific aspect of his personal share but important other folks who dialed in do y'all have thoughts questions May I be heard? Lauren? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Um, I thought the doctor did a lot of extra talking, but he did say something that I thought was pretty important. He said it would not be wise, I'm paraphrasing in case I didn't get it correctly, it would not be wise to assume the goodwill of white people in questions of race. That's pretty important. I think we should remember it. And I just wanted to reiterate that. Thank you. For sure. For sure. (laughs) Any other folks question they wanted to get in? Well, I agree with you, Gus. I was surprised that he was so um, verbose. I, I didn't expect that. And um, yeah, I was hoping to hear more about what he wrote, but um, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't get to speak much at all about the book, so maybe that's why he was talking so much. I don't know. I think, well, this is a newer book. It's not like it's been out for years and years for him to do tons of interviews uh, about it. I've seen uh, at least one, I guess, for important context for this book. So the lead author, Helen Hansen, is a non-white female with a white parent. And then the other two co-authors are white. We talked to one and then a white female, Jules Netherland. And I think she identifies as gay, if that means anything. Um, But that is an interesting dynamic of this book. I think they have all done interviews uh, together. Not tons, I would imagine, but I think that does uh, exist. But yeah, I did not. I was hoping I had was ready to roll. Like I would have loved to hear him talk about the veteran aspect, give a little bit more detail on that and even other aspects of the book that, you know, I think are also, you know, important uh, that, you know, detail white supremacy, racism, like white parents in New York. They uh, fought for and got discretion for cannabis use in their laws about how police were going to adjudicate that so that young white cannabis consumers would not be arrested and have those uh, noxious criminal records dogging them for the rest of their lives whereas that same sort of discretion was not extended to black people black misandry is a big component of this book as well Um, but yeah there are a number of you know different components even the song at the beginning uh, my world is blue talking it's a parody video but they're talking about white people in Staten Island New York and the explosive use of oxycotton pharmaceutical drugs there, abuse of really pharmaceutical drugs there. And even I think the white woman in the video, she's a fairy, fairy, fairy. 
and she sprinkles blue pixie dust for the oxycotton pills that they take um she overdosed died i think some years after i think she got arrested for selling illegally the pharmaceuticals and then a few years after that she died from an overdose um that yeah that was playing softly in the background but you can it's on youtube my blue world uh but making light of the white use of pharmaceuticals in staten island he talks about that in the book uh as well um i thought that demographics point was because that's in there a few times especially towards the end of the book about white people being aware of demographic anxiety and that motivating them to not produce justice but we have to maintain the system of white supremacy racism what are we going to do Peyton Gendron that type of thing everybody good anything else they need to get in can I be heard yes sir thank you um just real quick um thank you for the broadcast uh the guest was um very refined for an ex-drug addict um if that's what if that's the correct term or um, addicted person um white people have been using drugs for a long time and i just find it um very interesting you know that now all of a sudden there's this opioid crisis when that's been happening since the late 1800s um morphine codeine laudanum these are old things um yeah, just to reiterate again, I think that I find it fascinating how white people can still function and practice racism superbly on drugs and what they call pharmaceuticals and prescription drugs. And I'll end there. Thank you, sir, for your time. Much obliged, sir. That is included in the text, and they talk about that. With That's why I said it was so much more we could have talked about, um, because they talk about that, the long history in this part of the world at minimum and beyond, but this part of the world of uh, there always being a legal space with the metaphor, they'll use loophole for white drug use, white, whatever you want to call it, uh, recreational, non-medicinal drug use, uh, pharmaceuticals and all the rest of it, always, uh, making space for that. Uh, and when it does end up being a problem that that usage is not, criminalized that they get help and it's talked about as some sort of uh, brain deficit uh, and or they have been uh, exploited by unscrupulous pharmaceutical companies which would still be uh, white people but they talk about that long history uh, laudanum mentions that. that's why I said they show some of the long history of these different uh, advertisements I think I posted one uh, on Twitter yep for Bertazol, uh where it has the white woman tied up with some Native American like with the feathers and all her child has dressed up like that and it has tied her up and it says now she can cope thanks to Bertazol. in fact we talked about some of this before I just mentioned dear senator and child rape uh, Essie Mae Washington Williams she talks about how uh, Strom Thurmond one of his young white gals who was in the beauty pageants like John Panay Ramsey she got addicted to painkillers and I think she died really young too it wasn't painkillers it was diet pills that's what it was she got addicted to diet pills uh, and that caused her some serious uh, health issues but absolutely that is a long running theme in white culture and even he, they even include uh, the practice code 
of whites deliberately placing, they talk about it with heroin in great detail. Uh, so they'll place, allow the illicit drugs to operate in the Nigra area of town, call that the vice area. And so then if you're a white person, it's supposed to be deliberately more difficult for you to access heroin. They talked about how for many years, because of that, you did not really have uh, heroin, white heroin addicts because they couldn't access it. It was black people who had to worry about their children going up around heroin. They just didn't allow heroin to be sold in areas where white people resided. And then how that switched uh, later on and the response to it. But yes, if they go into uh, great detail uh, about consistently making sure that white people have access to all types of drugs, Staten Island roofies, diet pills, Oxycontin, whatever it is, liquor for sure, whatever it is, whatever you can think of. Yes. Got it. Let's see. Soon folks are good. We did our time a little bit, minute or two over. Uh, again, we'll be here on Thursday book club, Catherine Massey book club, Sue Klebold, a mother's reckoning. And the parallel is right there. So much of that in the, is in the book. I even was going to play the sound clip for him and have Dr. Herzberg make the parallel because they did the same thing with drugs. This is a neuroscience issue with black people. They're criminals and thugs and niggers. That's what they do. Snort crack cocaine all day long with their tiny pecan-sized brains. But that is right there. Sue Klebo saying that this is a neuroscience issue for Eric and Dylan. Same thing white people say about drugs. Matthew Shepard. Sobriety would be best creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring James Bird Jr. Jasper, Texas, 1999. Context of White Supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.